Howdy, y'all! Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. I'm Ben Fields. It's my podcast, and you made it. You're inside. You're here. Have a seat. Get comfortable, because this is a Jonathan Kerr day. Jonathan Kerr is a dear friend of mine. Gone back a little while. Been friends a better part of a couple decades now, looks like. And uh, Jonathan just got back from Los Angeles, where he's been working for the last few years. Jonathan works for the Tombers Group as a media strategist, and he's just a brilliant mind. Really, just brilliant at getting into other people's heads from a consumer standpoint, but really just a, a kind of an amateur psychologist, I would say. He's a wonderful man and uh, one of my dearest friends, and I'm really glad to have him back in Knoxville. We are lucky to have him uh, because he's just a great A dude, and I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. It winds, baby. It winds. So be okay to amble a little bit. Be smooth about it, too, all right? This is my chat with my buddy, Jonathan Kerr. We're doing the podcast. While you weren't looking at it. I was scrambling it. You're, you're just scrambling it? I was scrambling okay. the gotcha. Rubik's Cube. Gotcha. Yeah. Have you it, ever tried to solve one? Um, <laughs> not in earnest. Like, I've got pretty severe attention deficit disorder <laughs> and that I didn't really discover until later in life. But every time I've sat down with a Rubik's cube, I've lasted about that long, which is to it's, say like 45 seconds. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to happen for me. It's a whole, uh, like a series of steps and algorithms. You need to know nine different algorithms to solve a Rubik's cube. And at least in like the most basic way, it's not the only way to solve it, but the guys who do like speed cubing, they know like 400 algorithms and they know how to get all the faces, the right color and like these super fast 20 move algorithms, the shortest point between a and B or the shortest, shortest line between a and B. Well, a, a Rubik's cube at its most scrambled point is still only 20 turns at most from being completely solved. That's wild. It's also interesting to me to think about an algorithm as something that is like functional and physical, like it exists in the physical real world space versus being software, right? Oh yeah. Just like the term algorithm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I I've always I've always associated that with something that happens in the digital space. Yeah. Well, it is it's just a series of moves or a series of operations is ultimately what it is. Yeah. No, that totally makes that sense. are conditional. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a long, if then chain. Yeah. yeah. If this, then that man, I, uh, cheers by the way. Yeah. Smooth ambler. Ah, smooth ambler. Smooth ambler. Contradiction bourbon. Mm. Tasty. What, what is, what is this? What so, is this? Um, so smooth amblers, a, distillery and whiskey maker out of uh west virginia max welton west virginia right near greenbrier okay if you're familiar with greenbrier area it's where they hide congressmen and women um in the event of nuclear war underground there's like a cave system Uh, well a bunker system i should say but in greenbrier greenbrier west virginia and above ground it's like think um blackberry farms type Ah. you know super high-end bed and breakfast, bread and breakfast resort space. Um, but yeah, they, uh, 
they're really good people. They make really good whiskey. And this particular whiskey, um, I told you when I showed up is like my kind of like go-to house bourbon. And I really love it because it's a blend. It's a blend of straight bourbons and it's got a little Tennessee in it. So it's got, what, how, uh, they, they take bourbon that they distill there in West Virginia and they blend it with a burp with two other bourbons. They source one comes from, uh, Indiana MGB, um, which is a really well-known commercial distillery that supplies, uh, bourbon to a ton of different brands, most of which who don't disclose that their that their juice came from Indiana. Yeah. Um, and then uh, a Tennessee bourbon. So that, that you can probably, if you, if you close your eyes uh, when you taste it, you can probably identify the spirit that's uh, from Tennessee. I won't really, I'll leave it a secret. Well, how can it be bourbon if it's not made in Kentucky? That is an excellent question. It's, how, it's how a misconception. Yeah, no, it, it's a, uh, so bourbon has to be made in America aged for, um, for a minimum amount of time. I don't know it off the top of my head, which is probably a fireball offense for me, but, um, in <laughs> new American Oak barrels and it's gotta be 51% or more corn. And that's what makes bourbon. It it's, can be made in any state really? in the union. Yeah. So it's, it's not like champagne. Hawaii. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's not like champagne. It doesn't have to come from a particular region, but well, they'll it's, make you think that funny. Kentucky will make you think that, that bourbon yeah, can only and, be made in Kentucky. And they get, they get real fired up about it too. So, oh, I'm sure. um, it's actually funny because, um, Smooth Amber is a client and one of the campaigns that we've run for them is actually, um, I mean, it's, it's based on the insight that a lot of people think that bourbon can only come from Kentucky. And certainly those who think, even though among those who don't think bourbon can only come from Kentucky, think that only, or like that good bourbon only comes from Kentucky. So if you're outside of the state of Kentucky, but the truth is that nowadays, I mean, in every corner of the country, there's really fantastic bourbon being made. Um, and uh, I think the campaign idea or the, the, one of the key taglines was uh, bourbon has outgrown Kentucky. Ah. Bourbon is bigger than Kentucky. And uh, we ran a series of ads just on social media and got some really awesomely hilarious, angry comments I'm from sure. from uh, proud Kentuckians. So <laughs> the internet is still undefeated. Yeah. Man. So we're. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna lean into that. I think you know yeah. it's it's fun to to poke the bear. Well, so like trying to reshape a brand or come up with a strategy for a brand, like where does I don't know your your job. You're the you're the you're the third you're the third Tombro I've talked to. Yeah. Uh, uh, the third Tombrous person I've talked to. But like, what is the what what's your what's your job with a brand like Smooth Ambler or any brand that you work with? The kind of the unique thing about Tombrous, and let me first say about or say that my experience in advertising was kind of accidental you know, in, in the beginning. And I don't have an enormous basis for comparison. Like I don't know, um, or coming in, I didn't know how Tombris was differentiated from, you know, some of the other 
larger advertising agencies in larger markets and and, uh, and even just around town here. But um, what I've found is that what makes Tombers pretty unique is that our job with a brand like Smooth Ambler is different from our job with a brand like, you know, uh, I don't know who's another media client like Remax uh, Realty where we buy media, right? So with Smooth Ambler, we're brand creative strategy, creative production, uh, like social media production, social media management and strategy. Um, for other companies, we build web websites and do nothing right. else for other companies. We handle like full stack everything. So I've had to work on almost every kind of like ad agency discipline over the last eight years. Right. But right now I'm mostly doing like creative strategy and that's kind of the meat of what we do for smooth Ambler right now. D different archetypes with different clients. Some of them need, uh, some of them need media buys. They need their ads placed. Right. Some of them need complete, uh, rebrands or, 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 or brand identity help or strategy. And there's kind of, there's this, there's this huge swath of services that, uh, that brands need. And I guess you've had to kind of learn how to touch all of them, depending on what the need yeah, is. Yeah. Kind of accidentally. Um, it's fun, man. Like that's, I've, I've said since I started, like it was accidental that I ended up in this industry kind of, and, um, I don't always necessarily think advertising is, you know, that creates some bad incentives in places like social media. Um, it does create bad incentives. Yeah. You know, that the advertising revenue model is, is what's driving, you know, Facebook, Twitter, everybody to send push notifications and get you back on the platform. And I don't always think that that's the best for, for the individual's mental health. Um, but it's also like the current for, for me personally, like <laughs> it's a really, really fucking engaging space. It's, it's, you know, challenging. It, it's dynamic. You know, I'm working on different pro problems every day and get to work with a lot of really incredibly talented and creative people all the time. So that's like, that's kind of the, uh, the fuel, you know, when I, when I, uh, go into the office every day, which thank God I'm back in the office now, but, um, it's every day's different and every day's fun and challenging and, you know, probably going to stick with it for a while. Yeah, you've been in a lot of different uh, spaces since I've known you. When did, it, yeah. <laughs> when did we uh when did we meet? I was going to say when we I I couldn't quite put my finger on how we met, but I consulted Facebook uh to to track our the beginning of our our digital friendship it was j like July 2009. Okay. Which would have placed me um I was selling insurance at the time. I believe you were Maybe starting up Patchwork Pictures at the time. Yeah, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah, sounds about right. But I think I think that we we almost certainly met through mutual friends like the the Beard and Farragut crowd. Of course, I'm a South Knoxvilleian. Yeah, but God um, bless you. But I I yeah I made some inroads to the high society out west, and I think uh, indoor soccer may have been a part of it too. Indoor certainly could have been. It's hard to remember, like. We, we, we definitely played together 
at a time and i don't know if it was 2009 or sometime later but we had we had a, we had a run we had a good run you and bo shipley coming out <laughs> It Guys awesome. who had never played. So we went to uh, went to high school with like the best soccer team in America Yeah, when I was in school. And those were a lot of my good friends, like Matt Zachary and Nick Sparr, Dan Tremaine. Those guys were all part of like a national, number one national champion ranking in, in the country in high school soccer. And they were my closest friends. And so when we graduated from high school... Uh, those guys all still, none of them, I think Matt, Matt Zachary went to, uh, play, uh, college. King. Yeah. King college. He mm-hmm. went to play collegiate soccer, but there's not a whole lot of opportunity in soccer. Still isn't a lot of opportunity in soccer in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we had a bunch of studs that were really good at soccer. that were just my buddies that were hanging out and still wanted to play soccer, but didn't have a college to go play at. And, uh, I played lacrosse in high school. And so I had like the conditioning part of it down you're, you're a natural athlete but like, <laughs> I, I i i was but i had the running part down and so it was just like using learning how to strike the ball i already knew how to move in space and find passing lanes and all that like all that was there and going to play soccer with all you guys because you were all so good it was really amazing to to see like people doing something at a very high level for 18 year olds like the highest level mm-hmm. that people are doing it at that age outside of like you know uh the out, outside of like professional club team prep kind of stuff a, a couple things there one uh you're right bearden and farragut were like my four years in high school at south doyle where one of the two of those teams was ranked number one in the nation at some point during our season which was pretty demoralizing really <laughs> i mean we were we had an excellent team in high school um but you were just going up against juggernauts well yeah we we would we would finish you know third in the district behind beard and farragut right yeah so, and they were ranked number one and number two in mm-hmm. the country <laughs> we'd, we'd win our first district tournament game and then we'd face one of the two of them and we'd lose by a goal or two and and go home so we never got to make it state or anything like that but we we competed well we had some moral victories which is great. So, but yeah, mo- moving on to the, the playing indoor with you, which was super fun. I mean, the whole point of playing like recreational league, adult league soccer is to keep having fun with your friends. And we definitely <laughs> did that during that time. But I remember, I remember thinking my first impression of you playing soccer, knowing that you hadn't played was well, clearly he's kicked a ball around, you know, because a lot of a lot of the time when new people, completely new people come in, you just don't understand the physics of the game in a way. And you were a pretty quick study. Um, and I remember you were uh, effective enough in positioning that you uh, you notched a couple goals. Yeah, uh, I, I scored yeah. a lot of goals because yeah. when I when I played lacrosse, I played the X position, which is the position that it goes behind the goal when you're on offense. Mm. And so you're kind of like the point attackman. And you're kind of the one facilitating all the movement towards the goal, yeah. and you're kind of seeing lanes. You're 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 facilitating the attacks. You're on the moving goal. the defense around. Yeah, you're too. moving the yeah. defense of the defense around to create mm-hmm. passing lanes and scoring opportunities. Yeah, and that was the same in both in both sports for me. Even though soccer, you don't play behind the goal. 
I, I when I when I would go forward and and play a forward position, which is the only thing I really could play because I didn't have any knowledge of <laughs> how to play defense. You're a liability in the back. I was yeah. a liability in the back, but I could get open enough to poke one by yeah. beyond the goaltender. <laughs> no, and a lot of you probably had a better finishing touch than I did. No, I, I remember what what I remember about uh, about playing a, a season of indoor. Uh, with you, I know we were we we played a couple seasons together, but uh, you, I think, were kind of the 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 most like uh, I want to say like the most talented ball handler and the most like uh, uh, effective scorer on the team. And so you're you're I remember a few games in a row, man. You would just like start off the game, everybody's just kind of getting warmed up and all that, and you would kick the ball off and take the ball down and score within the first five seconds and get us a one goal lead. And it was like nobody else was ready, but you had the chops. You'd get out there, you'd run run down the field with the ball. I think I think I remember that happening like once. No, but no, I here, here's the thing: is like I bet when we played together, and I don't know because I've got a a really shit memory. But I think we probably played together when I was like in my mid twenties, like twenty five, twenty six. Peak and I had, peak performance, and I was like, that was like the best I ever got, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then things started to fall apart. The, the wheels started to come off from there. Well, you um, were you were in the like you said you were in the insurance industry, and then didn't you do something? Didn't you move to Atlanta for a time or no? No, I, I'd spent. A fair amount of time in Atlanta, just visiting friends and stuff. But no, when I, I was when I was looking, I was scrolling back through Facebook, trying to figure out like, oh shit, what we were doing, what we were talking about, whatever. And it's so funny to think about like, I've got a post that I took a screenshot of that I thought was really funny. It's of not you, from my bachelor yeah, party. Like is we, it? No, we used to we used to use Facebook as a one-to-one communications platform, like on people's, like you would post on someone's wall, a message that was meant for just them to see. Like, not that like certainly other people could see it, but it was just a common thing. You know, you'd like, like you were sending somebody a text. It it was peer to peer communication. Look at this one. Oh, it says Benny's thirsty. Yeah. It was just me posting to you. Benny posted on my wall, (laughs) May 25th, 2010, Benny's thirsty. And you know where we were probably going? Where? We were going to Union Jacks. Of course we were. We were meeting at Union Jacks um, to, uh, to to talk about business. And I think that time um, you were probably doing the beer challenge around yeah, then. Yeah, I, I did. I, I don't know if I, – I don't think I ever finished my second beer challenge. But the beer challenge at Union Jacks, I think it still exists. But you, you have to drink every beer that they, they have in stock at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of however long it takes you to do it, you can drink four a day mm-hmm. towards your beer challenge. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then once you're done with all two or three hundred beers they have in the house, then you get you get uh, you get uh, this mug right here that's sitting on the desk. Still one of my proudest oh. uh, accomplishments, my uh, Union Jack's uh, English Pub Beer Stein. You Beautiful. only get that if you finish the beer challenge. The you pewter, get, the yeah, pewter stein, the pewter yeah. stein. Yeah, and then you get a, you got a T-shirt. And then you're supposed to get a dollar off of beers for the rest of your life as long as you're wearing the shirt. I don't wear the shirt. I still have it because, of course, it's one of my most prized. They just need lockers at Union Jacks yeah, that like, you can put your shirt in yeah. and just slide it on. Like they go. have at cigar bars? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Agreed. Exactly. But yeah, I, that, 
Uh, that actually, uh, you know, Sarah and I were dating for a long time before I started my beer challenge, but my beer challenge really forced us to break up. <laughs> we we broke up for almost a year while we were dating because I, I was that. spending all my time at Union. I Jacks. remember, I remember you breaking up. I didn't know that it was because of the beer challenge. It, but... they, if you ask her, I bet it was because yeah, I was, I was going to Union Jacks instead of coming home and working on, working on my thing. It worked out really well for me that you were going so often because, um, UJ's is my neighborhood bar, right? I'm in Dean Hill. Yeah. I had, I had just bought that house and, um, I was renovating it and, um, I don't really want to do the math or the, the, the financial forensics to determine how much of my renovation budget went into the coffers at Union Jacks, probably more than was responsible, but at the, uh, I remember when I was doing the beer challenge, they used to do the pub quiz at Union Jacks, which was like a Sunday trivia night where yeah. they asked you 20 questions and they were hard. A they were named, very like, I went one or two times and, and I was like, clearly I don't belong here. Yeah. It was like you, the winner would get like 12 of them, right? You know, yeah. 12 of the yeah. 20 questions, right? Very esoteric. Yeah. Super obscure knowledge. But one of the uh, bonus questions, one or the tiebreaker questions was like, how much if you Finished. If you finished your beer challenge today without tip, how much would it cost you? And it was somewhere like it was in the like twelve to fourteen, sixteen hundred dollar world mm. of what it would cost to actually mm. drink every beer that they had in the house and pay, mm -hmm. you know, without tip. So I'd say, you know, if you're hanging out there with me, you're you're probably you probably spent a couple grand hanging and then, out. And then when you think about it, let's say you do wear your shirt to UJ's mm -hmm. um, every time you go. And you get dollar off beers. It's going to take you, you know, sixteen hundred beers at Union Jacks after you've drank the original two hundred and fifty to break to, to get the. This is going to take you another. So you're not doing it for the discount. No. You're doing it for the, for the, uh, for the pride and for the glory. And to get your name on the wall. And to get your name on the yeah. wall. Exactly. Yeah, I do. And for the pewter mug. It, yeah, pewter mugs got to got to happen. I I, uh, I I do remember holding office hours down there, hmm. you know, and 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 having meetings down there quite a bit while I was starting the production company. We we had a meeting. I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been when I sold you like a general liability policy for Patchwork Pictures. Okay, as you were getting started, some cheapy, um, uh, and <laughs> we met. I think we met at 2 p.m. at UJ's, which was funny because I don't think they opened until 3 p.m. <laughs> <They didn't, laughs> somebody, somebody knew some people and could get us in early. Yeah, so they didn't open till four, but they, but the bartenders would let you in early if they, they always said. I was like, "Are you sure you can do this? Like, the owner's okay with that?" And they're like, "Yes, you can come early, just don't stay late." So, like, uh, you know, if, if we're gonna go, if we're gonna uh, uh, serve people on one side of the, right, right. Uh, of the hours, and early it was right. Val and Laura, I think, were the bartenders yeah. there, and they're great. So, anyway, I think I met you one day at two p.m. at Union Jacks, and we show up, and <laughs> and you've got a back, a big old backpack, and you sling it up on the bar, and it makes this like clang, like really a sound that you don't expect to be coming out of a backpack. And I was like, interesting. And then you open up the backpack nonchalantly and you pull out, I don't know, 16 pint glasses. <laughs> something. And I was like, what are you, are you doing their dishes? And he was like, I'm just returning, returning their glassware. 
returning their glassware. <laughs> I I might I I mean if I was young I might have been known to take a road dog with me every now and then. They <laughs> they they were generous I think at the time a few owners ago. Yeah, different different <laughs> different ownership. It yeah. was a much different look. It was a different time in America. Diff- a different time. And I lived really close to Union yeah, Jackson. Yeah, you were you were a neighbor too. Anyway, yeah. I was yeah. I was taking one home. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but at least ca- I brought their glasses. The, ca- the cabinets got full. You had some road dogs that you need that needed to uh, <laughs> need to be returned from the pound. Anyway. I can't. I cannot wait until uh, I get to go to their new place, Union Landing. Have you heard about this? Yes, I've heard about it. Um, I'm excited about it. We I've talked about it so much on the show. I, I've uh, yeah. I can't believe I haven't been yet. I keep bringing it up. Yeah, no, I mean I'm I'm a uh, which which I'm sure we'll talk about, but like I'm, I'm three, gosh, I'm like two and a half weeks back into my, um, return to living in Knoxville. So I haven't had a chance to get, I have had a chance to get on the lake. In fact, twice in the, what, like couple of weeks that I've been back. That's required reading for a Knoxvillean. Exactly. No, you have to, you have to get your sea legs quickly. Sure. Otherwise, yeah. Live somewhere else. You're you're out of luck. Yeah. Or you're hot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Bur- you got to get near a body of water. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I honestly, I have not. I have probably been as much time as I've spent on on Loudon. I have probably been to Louisville, Louisville Landing. Yeah, I think it's Louisville Landing. Louisville Landing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have I have been there probably like once or twice in my life, and yeah. I think one of the times was. Uh, going in there with a limping boat after hitting a log or something in the ah, channel. Yeah, so, it had any port in a storm situation. Yeah, somebody said, or it might have been you who told me originally was was that they were opening up and it was it was formerly a different restaurant and now it's going to be um, a union property. Yeah, Union Jacks, like, Union Place. Union I was Landing. like, there was there was a restaurant in there before. I yeah. just had no idea. But I'm I'm stoked that good people who know how to run a business. And make an awesome yes. environment or are getting a spot on the water. Yeah, Aaron so. and his wife, uh, I don't know them personally. I mean, I mean, I met them a few times and, and chatted with them. Uh, but they're like, the, the stewardship of Union Jacks has been awesome. And they've turned it into uh, a, a, a legit a, a legit business where as before it was a place where people could hang out and take beers home from in the middle of the day. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, it's a, it's now a, a it went from being a smoky hole in the wall bar that had all the charm in the world to being a legitimately run business that still has all the charm in the world, but mm-hmm. has amenities they, and is nice. They, they didn't change it just enough to retain that charm, that charm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but the, the Louisville landing spot, the, uh, uh at, at, uh, Union the union landing, landing yeah. spot at Louisville landing, that was my first, that was my first job in that restaurant as a, you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. So I would, uh, I lived in Mariner's point, which is just across the lake from Louisville right. landing. I grew up in Mariner's point and the, uh, I was too young to, to drive a car. I was 14 years old, but I was old enough to, to work. And so my parents had this old boat that we had had since I was a kid. The wind-up toy? No. A different one. A different one. Uh, one that I sunk. It was a Sea Ray. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I sunk it after my job at uh, Louisville Landing uh, had, had ended. But uh, but 
Louisville Landing by car was like 20 minutes away. Yeah. And, you know, drive down Pellissippi, get off Topside Road, you know, all that. Uh, but it was, I could see it from my backyard and across the lake. You could and paddle so to it. I could paddle to it, and I did. But my uh, my parents let me take the family boat and work there one summer. So I would go over there after, you know, on Friday or Saturday night, go work a, uh, work a restaurant shift in that building. And then uh, take the boat home in the dark and park it at the boat dock and walk up to the house and and uh, go to bed. Man, I can't imagine how exhilarating it was as a teenager, not just to have a boat, have access to a boat that you could drive across across the lake. It's it's a you know it's really close, right? But to have a boat that you could drive across across the lake in the dark, mm. like driving a boat in the dark is exhilarating for me now, like today after. God, you know, 25 years of driving a boat. Yeah. So. Well, you got to have a Q-beam. You have a Q-beam? You know about that? You got a Q-beam. Um, I got a Q-beam, but uh, I use I use it so infrequently whenever I need it. Yeah. It's kind of a crapshoot as to whether it's going to work. Like, we, my family has old boats. Yeah. So, my dad has a, a Mastercraft uh, ski boat that's like a 91, Oh wow! I think. Is it closed um, bow? Uh, no, open bow. Uh, oh, and nice. It's, it's beautiful. It's one of the larger... Like a yeah, Mar- Maristar, prob- maybe? Yeah, actually. Yeah, I think it is a Maristar. Yeah. Um, uh, we've we've long since changed the decals on it, right? So yeah. it didn't retain its, <laughs> its true emblems. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, we've got one of those from 91 that looks... Great. I mean, my dad's just taken incredible care. He's one of those guys that just like he fucking loves (laughs) his boat, you know. And um, and I really admire that about it. Back when I was a kid, we had um this old orange and white Norris craft. Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. He had a like a night eighteen nineteen foot um Norris craft outboard ski boat. Evan Rude, you know, 175 horsepower outboard motor on it. And um, it was requiring a fair bit of maintenance, I think, um, at this point in its life. It was a 70-something. And uh, this would have been back in the, honestly, like the the, er- the early to mid-aughts. Yeah. Um, so you were a high school grad, college student, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I was in college probably. Yeah. Early aughts probably. Um, and dad was like, I'm going to get it. I need to get a new boat. This thing can, it's not pulling skiers as well as it used to. This is what's important to us. I'm going to get rid of it unless you want it. And I'll sell it to you at a really good price. And I was like, I cannot imagine taking care of a boat like right now. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I was, I was just, you know, I was in college. I was, uh, probably I was, I was working a lot, but going to class, partying, you know, not really interested in, certainly I wanted to go out on the lake, but I didn't want to do it on a boat that was going to require the amount of care that I knew that one would. And that thing, if I had it today would be, I mean, just a, a, a crown jewel, a you know? stud. I mean, it was just a beautiful boat. It was orange and white. It <laughs> knocked on. it. I, was, I let it go. Yeah. So, 
well, really regret that. Something that I uh, uh, learned hanging out down at Knoxville Boat Club, mm-hmm. which is a place I know you're familiar with. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, the people that hang out down there, b- having a boat, owning a boat, is not like is not a thing that you do in addition to the rest of your life. It becomes it, your life. It's yeah. a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You're cleaning it. You're fighting mold all the time. The damn yeah. thing's wet all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're just all you're trying to do is keep it f- from rotting ultimately i mean it's 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 entropy ultimately you're just you're just trying to keep the thing from devolving into absolute chaos at all times you know we so we had a similar or kind of a a related experience when um when lauren and i moved to california we left her car here in knoxville so that i could have something to drive when i came when i traveled back in town for work did you do that a lot did you come back in town a bit that first year pre-covid yeah it was 2019, I was, gosh, the back half of the year, I was like 60 something percent travel. If you just looked wow. at my calendar, okay. it was awful. Yeah. It was yeah. not fun. Yeah. Um, the, the people who travel, you know, multiple days, every single week for work, traveling salespeople, whatever corporate types, I do not admire that lifestyle. I cannot live it. I admire it. I don't envy it. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, that, that's I fair. admire that's that somebody fair. else yeah. can do I it. I would not trade places with them, right? But sure. anyway, uh, it wound up. I guess it was. I guess it was probably maybe late 2019, or even even after COVID hit, because I was just able to come back in town far, you know, far less. But cars will go the way of boats if you just leave them sitting. Yeah, it's they'll, weird. Thing. Like dry rot. Was it covered? Um, on and off. Yeah, but I mean the like the all the rubber seals around the windows, the sunroof. It was like a Honda Civic, but everything started dry rotting, cracking. Car started leaking. Oh my god! Couldn't you know? Couldn't figure out where the water's coming in. Yada yada yada. And and we just ultimately had to sell it. But it was like that's what happens to boats. Yeah, <laughs> every year because they're sitting in. Yeah. They're sitting in a in a garage or sitting out with a cover on them yeah. in the elements for three quarters of the year. Well, so. Something I notice about having a car in L.A. is that the same thing kind of happens is uh, with with especially if it's not covered and having a vehicle that's subjected to the elements in Southern California, which means it gets wet um, approximately point zero three percent of the days of the year. Like Twelve. 12 days a year. Yeah. And it's just a little bit of water. And they're generally strung together. So then it's like, you know, 280 continuous days without water. And people have never driven in it before. And their windshield wipers are dry rotted because they've been sitting there for nine months, completely dry, haven't been turned on. And then you turn on your windshield wipers and it just smears a bunch of black goop across (laughs) your windshield. Uh, That's so funny. I know. That's That's such a unique to LA or unique to the desert experience. (laughs) It is. The, uh, The first year that I lived in LA through the winter, it had more rain. I think there was, it was something stupid, man. It was like 17 inches of rain in January, which is like a yearly total for Southern, for Southern California. And it hit in like in January. And my dad came out to visit me in like March or April. And we were driving through like the, we were driving up the two through like Silver Lake and and Mm -hmm. Los Feliz and going up into like Eagle Rock and Pasadena and all that. 
And my dad was looking around. He's been to LA a number of times in his life. And he was like, this has never been green before when I've been here. Like this vegetation is always brown and gross. Yeah. Why is it green? I was like, it probably has something to do with the damn near 20 inches of rain we got in January when it just rained for, you when, know, when Lauren and I first moved out there in 20 and was March of 2019, um, we arrived and it was like that. They had apparently had a really wet spell mm. and we were just like, Oh my God, this is like a, th- this is, this is a, a wonderland of flora, you know, in, yeah. in LA there's, and, and there are like crazy plants in LA year round, right? Sure. Like there's the birds of paradise and, and a bunch of stuff that you don't see. Um, in East Tennessee or really anywhere else in the country. Yeah. It's a high desert climate. climate. Well, it's, it's like a high desert climate with ubiquitous irrigation. Mm. So like you can grow whatever you want in LA pretty much, you know, like very few things don't survive in LA provided you have access to the water, which they do. They just, you know, cause the weather's always good. There's never any frost to deal with. Not a lot of natural predators. There's there's no, there's no, and real, I mean, there's not a lot of like predatory animals, bugs, things like that. You don't really see that. And they're pretty cavalier about pumping water off the Sierras willy nilly. Yeah. That kind of gets <laughs> them in a bad spot the with reservoirs. the rest of the state. It's, cr- it's, it's truly wild. Like to think about the, the lack of conservation mentality in Southern California around, around water use. And, and it sucks, right? Like we don't have to worry about that in East Tennessee, which is, frankly a privilege yeah um, living but, in a temperate rainforest yeah yeah but um i remember i studied abroad in valencia spain in uh would have been 2007 i guess and my the home that i stayed in there with just a a, a family we had to we were made to when we showered you had to get wet turn the water off mm-hmm. lather up turn the water back on to rinse off, you know, turn the water, like very, I probably ran the water in the shower for 60 seconds max. Wow. Whenever I'd take a shower in Valencia. And that was like the mandate or it wasn't even a, like a governmental mandate. It was a cultural norm. Yeah. They had a norm around conservation, which is, would probably be pretty prudent in the, you know, the Southwest of America. If, we just didn't really have that type of culture. The The problem with the water crisis in Southern California is, is human beings contribute to about 5% of, yeah, of the, the, of the water usage, right? The lettuce bowl. Is that what they call it? I th- the salad bowl. I think they well, call it the when salad I say bowl, human beings, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, civilians using water is 5% of mm-hmm. it. You're Farming right. You're right. is 95% of the water usage in Southern California, which you're like, okay, well, I'm only 5% of the problem. Does it really matter? Can I make a dent? It's the whole, it's the same thought totally process right. you go through with global warming and like, can I really make a difference and all that kind of stuff. And, but you also realize that, uh, f- uh, uh commercial farming in Southern California is very important to the sustenance of the United You're States totally right. of America, which is which is probably not the best thing from a, you know, supply chain fragility 
point of view. Yeah, like a redundancy deal? Yeah, like you're kind I of mean, putting all your eggs in one basket as far as getting I think all your avocados from one place and all your oranges <laughs> from one place? I think I read somewhere a long time ago, like several years ago, that there there were there are a couple roads in America that if you know a bridge a key bridge collapsed or something it would cut off the the food supply to like 78% of America right. or some you know don't quote me on any of this Yeah we'd stats, figure out yeah. a way though right Surely right Yeah yeah sure. yeah, yeah, yeah mobilize the 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 air the air force I don't yeah. know it, it anyway it seems like a more distributed farming system is something that would benefit the u.s long term if you drive in between like uh, if you drive on the 101 between like ventura and san luis obispo or like off that whole area up the wine country coast in southern california until yeah. you until you get to you know san jose or, or big sur or whatever on the mm-hmm. i mean there's so much farming in between the coast and interstate five and it is just a, a disproportionate amount of the pie chart of of industrial farming that happens in the United States and where so much of our food comes from. And, and it also happens to be in a place that is that water is a resource that they just are not flush with. They're flush with weather. Yeah. Like they've you said, got the rains right like 18 inches of rain <laughs> a year. A year yeah. And um, fortunately they get more snow up in the high altitude. I mean, that's regions, what fills the reservoirs, what, yeah, right? Is snow melt. On. Yeah. yeah. It's when the snow melts in the spring, it fills the reservoirs and then the reservoirs drain out to all the communities that need the water. And so they're panicking if they don't have a big snow year, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. or if they have a cold spring where it doesn't melt. Yeah, there's 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 big problems, and then there's you know there's there's like regional fights throughout the state. Like people in mid state California, San Francisco, don't like Southern California because no. it takes a, a most of the water. <laughs> this is the last last thing I'll say. Last anecdote on water, because um, I could nerd out on this stuff for a long time. But uh, is I heard read somewhere that um, so the way that they pump water down to Southern California from the Sierras is this one pipeline and it actually has to climb, um, up over, is it the Angeles mountain range? That's just North of Los Angeles. Um, yes. I, I forget. It's like, a, it's a state or national park. I think it's national, Angeles or, national forest. Angeles national forest. Yeah, yeah. Like Lompoc area. Then there's a exactly. big range of mountains and then there's the San Fernando Valley. Below exactly. Yeah. So it's just, it's just North and kind of, northeast of los angeles proper but that's the route that the water takes to get down to la Cañada. los angeles and uh and san diego and the power that they are currently using because it takes power to put it over to, the hill to, to you know lift it over the mountains is coming from the el diablo nuclear plant okay um in like central coast california and they are getting ready, I think, in 2023 to decommission that nuclear plant. Okay. Um, and as of when I, whenever I read this, um, they did not have any alternative power source. They didn't have a backup plan? The water no to, plan? And, and obviously, like, you want to move to, like, green... Renewable energy. Like, renew, renewable energy sources and, and certainly make it the case that, like, hey, nuclear is it. But... Um, but the land use and the ecological preservation laws are so stringent in California, they can't even drop a solar farm anywhere because it like disrupts the habitat of some creature that is protected. So, 
Yeah. Um, it's like a catch 22. And it's, uh, it's somewhat, some people would argue it's overregulated. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I think. It, <laughs> one more thing. One more thing Unwater. about water. Yeah. Desal. Yeah, totally. Desalination. I don't know how it works. Um, I don't either. I know it's it's super uh, energy uh, intensive. Intensive. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but it seems like something that we need to figure out if water is going to be a problem. For sure. Like we need to be able to make enough power uh, efficiently to to do the process to remove salt from water because and, guess and what will. 70% of the earth is water and I always talk about yeah. like god being the the evil uh or the, the kid with the magnifying mm-hmm. glass on the anthill it's like mm-hmm. guess what you need one thing to survive it's water guess what 70% of the world is made out of it figure it out guess what you can't drink it <laughs> <laughs> yeah solve that problem and then yeah. you, and then you got something going we will we will eventually there's we, a great um book written by a guy named Peter Diamandis called um abundance i think and he tells a story that i'm going to butcher here in the in like the preface of the book about how um i don't know like a long time, let's just say 880 or something like that. Um, a guy discovered how to extract and form aluminum. And he brought an aluminum plate to the king or emperor or whatever. You can tell how big of a history buff I am. Um, <laughs> uh, and presented this plate to the to the emperor or whatever. And the emperor was like, what is this? And he was like, it's, you know, it's this substance i made it myself and that guy got beheaded because that was something that was rarer and more valuable than gold which was what the emperor's like purse his his fortune was predicated on he saw this person as a threat to his authority because Mm. he had this you know new unique you know money is power and and this was was this was something that that scared him so they killed that guy. And then the next person who discovered how to extract aluminum from the earth was like like 1,200 years later. Really? And now aluminum is like one of the most ubiquitous and um, important, you know, plentiful and important <laughs> metals yeah. on the planet. Yeah. So aluminum is pretty bad. And he, in, in, in the book, he was using that, that anecdote as a way to say like, He's he's very much like a techno optimist, right? We're gonna we're eventually gonna solve all our problems um, via technology. But like the desal water desalinization thing, like that could happen. We could have a breakthrough tomorrow that completely changes the game, and we now have unlimited water. Who knows? Yeah. So I hope it happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, so you're well, what, but every what what's funny? Sorry, what's funny is like every new technological advance seems to have externalities <laughs> that we then have to create new technological advances to solve 20, 30, 50, 100 years down the road. Yeah. It's like the last 100 years, anytime somebody even uh, started to make an electric car, they found them dead in their basement. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Six months later. All oh. these birds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, uh, 
you know, I, I had a couple of really great years in Southern California and I was very excited when I heard that you were going to move there and you moved there because your wife had an opportunity for, uh, some work, I think, yeah. or some education. And, uh, I was shocked to hear that you were going to make the trip out there, honestly, because I know how much, uh, how much you value your family, your big mm-hmm. family guy and, and your, how much you value your friendships too and your community. And, uh, I was shocked when you said you were going to kind of uproot the whole thing and move to California, but you did the old standby, which is like, I'll be gone a few months. Oh yeah. yeah. It and then works it turned into way. what? Three years. Uh, yeah, I keep saying three and a half years. Lauren keeps correcting me and saying it was really closer to three and a quarter years. Just oh, over three I, years, I think right? that's semantics. We can, yeah. yeah, we can say, um, we can say three and some change. I like to embellish our, mm-hmm. embellish our journey a bit, but yeah, I never, ever thought that I would move to Los Angeles. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, um, about a month before we found out about Lauren's job um, opportunity out there. I was being recruited coincidentally by an, an ad agency based out of San Francisco. Hmm. And um, at the time I had a couple cl- like my client, the kind of center of mass of my client base was on the West coast. And a couple of them were proximate to the Bay area. And like I said, they, I was offered to be flown out for an in-person interview and, um, and I went to Dooley Tombris who owns Tombris cause I, I've, I've got the type of relationship with Dooley, um, is, is I feel like probably pretty unique because I actually started at Tombris, you know, eight years ago working in new business development directly with Dooley. Right. Mm. So he was like, he was my boss. This guy, John Welsh was my boss. John Welsh just recently retired, but he's, he's awesome. But I worked with Dooley a lot. So we have really good rapport. So this was before Dooley's kind of running the show now, right? Oh yeah. 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 He's and, and Charlie's, um, which is his you know, dad. Char- Charlie's his dad started the company. Uh, no, Charlie's dad started the company. So no it's, kidding. yeah, it's third generation. And I think founded 1946. Okay. So, so Charles Sr. 80, 80, almost 80 years. Yeah. Charles Sr. founded it. Charles Jr. ran it for, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and then Dooley took over as president just uh, not cur- not a real long time ago, maybe four or five years ago. So you worked with the boss's son right when you started. Yeah. Yeah. In a pretty big company of a couple, a hundred or so people. Yeah. When I started, it was about 108 people. Now it's like 100 and, or excuse me, 100. Uh we're coming up on five X what we are then. I think we're about to hit 500 employees. So wow. pretty, pretty tremendous and, and consistent growth over that time. But, um, anyway, back to, back to the plot. I, uh, so I had this opportunity to go interview with a company out there and I went to Dooley because I had no intention of taking a job in San Francisco. And I was like, Hey, I can get this company to pay for me to fly to San Francisco to interview with them, not going to take the job. And while I'm out there, I'll do some competitive research and I'll visit our clients and, uh, expenses paid. What do you think? And he was like, his first impression was, um, thank you very much. When you need to go visit our clients in San Francisco, I will happily fly you out there. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) you do not need to interview with another company. 
which I hadn't, frankly, hadn't even crossed my mind. Yeah, you were just trying to be a fiscally conservative individual, like take care of the company. (laughs) Um, And uh, anyway, and I was like, okay, good, got it, understood. And then uh, I was was still in the, this is back when we used to go into the office all the time. And um, so yeah, we parted ways. And then later that day he called, he called me like after hours and was like, hey, I've been thinking about what you brought up earlier and I just want to make it clear that like, if you ever did want to move for any reason to California, um, I think eventually we'll need to open an office out there and we'd be happy to like keep you on the team and, and you could, you could help start a California office or something like that. Right. And I was like, Dooley, believe me, I have no interest in moving to California. <laughs> I am a Knoxville kid. <laughs> I no, I'm I'm home. This is my home. And then like almost 30 days to the day later, um I was walking into his office and saying, "Hey Dooley, can I move to Los Angeles?" <laughs> so it's it's wild how that worked out. But yeah, no, Lauren um Lauren Buntemeyer is my my recently betrothed wife. Congratulations. I like that um, ring. Yeah. It's interesting. We've been wearing these for years, but you got one now. Yeah. And, and so far I'm pretty good at keeping up with it. Yeah. Hardly, it, I hardly ever take it off. You had not been to enough, enough bachelor parties. Right. Yeah. <laughs> God. No, I think the wedding ring on a bachelor party is actually like a, probably a superpower. It is. It's yeah. good. Yeah. I, I have, uh, I went to a bachelor party in, uh, South Carolina one time and we were on our best behavior the entire weekend. And this uh, a guy I didn't know him that way. It was with a, with a group that we that I was with, like friend of a friend situation, and uh, he was smoking like a a brisket or something, and he made a br- brisket for all of us one night, and he took his wedding ring off to to like to tear the brisket apart or to or, uh, or whatever I forget yeah. what he was doing with the smoked meat that he made, and he lost his wedding ring. <laughs> On the bachelor party, that's and, never. A and good I was like, time. "Dude, that's the worst possible time." There's to lose no your way. <laughs> yeah, your wife is ever gonna believe that. You, uh, no you know, way. You tell her any story you want. They're still married. I'm sure she believed the story, which was true. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, that's yeah. so funny. And that, yeah, that's what I always think about when I think about people taking my, their oh, wedding rings off. I'm like, don't do so it. So I've got a great losing your wedding ring story from my family. So my dad lost his wedding ring when he was just like working around the house one day. And this was back when I was, when I was pretty young is before he moved. Um, so I would have been certainly younger than 12, but my dad, my dad lost his wedding ring on like sometime during, I think it was like during the summer. Anyway, doesn't really matter, um, when he lost it, but, it was gone. He got a new wedding ring, you know, like just never to be found. Yeah. Um, and then he found it, uh, like in the winter he was, we used to have like an outside dog. Right. Um, remember when people had outside dogs? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, we had an outside dog and at the time it was completely humane. I cannot imagine having an outside dog now but they were actually sure they still exist dogs back then. yeah they were, <laughs> they were just dogs yeah <laughs> but um yeah we had our our dog had a, a dog house below the deck in our backyard and um 
dad was out there cleaning dry leaves out of the doghouse, um, and he found his wedding ring in the doghouse. Mm. I mean, yeah, it happens. I've heard yeah. him, I've heard him get relocated before, and then and then you have a backup for if you ever lose it again. Right you know, now, you got two wedding rings. I just think it's so funny that that you you lose your wedding ring and you wind up it winds up in the doghouse. Yeah. Maybe you didn't, but it did. Um so so Lauren yeah. Buntemeyer? You yeah, said? Lauren Buntemeyer. Yeah. And she's <laughs> she's a uh she's kind of a, a, a Knoxville transplant. She moved here um for grad school, for architecture grad school. School brings a lot of people to Knoxville. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm glad I'm glad glad she came here. But um kind of from all over. Anyway she got she she had graduated from UT. She was working at Sanders Pace, um, architecture firm. Mm-hmm. Working at Sanders Pace and got, um, I think it was through a connection at the university, um, through the grad program. They contacted her about a job at uh, a firm called Morphosis in LA. That's that's a really, um, a really good shop. Really really good architecture firm. Really famous. Um, principal named Tom Main, who's like a Pritzker winning architect, which is like one of the higher awards. I don't, I don't know everything about it, but I think it's one of the better, more prestigious awards you can win as an architect. The Pulitzer Prize. Of, yeah, he's like uh, a, he's like a living legend, right? Cool. Um, Morphosis. Yeah, seventy-five year old guy, and that it was leaving her, you know, full time career type position at Sanders Pace to take an internship in Los Angeles at Morphosis, but it was working in fabrication, which is kind of Lauren's specialty. Um, and, and like where she kind of has like the most passion towards. Um, so it was like, a, it was a dream job really, but it was, they were going to pay her some living stipend that was not probably enough to survive on in LA. Um, and she and I had been dating, at that time for only about five months in Knoxville. But like we knew pretty early on that it was a, it was a serious thing. Right. Yep. But a uh, small segue first, like real date was at union jacks. Perfect. So naturally the gift that keeps giving. Yeah. Um, she smoked me in pool four games in a row and I was like, <sighs> done deal. <laughs> Sign me up. If and, you find a woman that can beat you in pool, yeah, I mean, you, smoke me you got in, a good you, smoke you me in hang pool four games in a row. Um, I was like, you've had a few drinks. You should. I, I live way closer. You should probably. We should probably just stay at my house. And she was like, no thanks. I'm going home. And I was like, God, double. <laughs> that always like, works. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we've been dating five months, and uh, and it took me about. Once she got the the job offer, she got the opportunity. She interviewed. She got the offer, which was a surprise to her. Um, I kind of felt like she was going to get the offer, but she didn't think she was. So it happened. And then um, I thought about it for, I don't know, like six hours or something. And I was like, oh, yeah. I can can move to L.A. Like, this is going to work out. I can do this. So you walked into Dooley's office and said, and I walked into Dooley's office and said, mother, may I, I'd like to, I'd like to move to Los Angeles. It was, it was really one of those, like, I'm going to do this. Are you okay with it? Rather than, yeah, 
sir, please can I? And and of course, Dooley, as as he always has been in my career, was just super supportive and was like, yeah, this is a great thing. Sounds like an awesome opportunity. We'll take care of you out there. Try to come back occasionally. You know, yeah. I think when we when we first moved out there, it was still very much an in person gig, right? Um, yeah, this was 2019 before COVID. You, right. you, remote work was not ubiquitous at the time. Right. And not just ubiquitous, but it was like really challenging to get things done remotely in, in a lot of cases. But yeah, there was nothing in place. It had not been a necessity yet. So yeah. it had just kind of been. Everybody was still on Zoom beta. Everybody was Skyping at the time. Yeah. Um, Skype was a thing. Skype. And- the really innovative people at that time were using Zoom. Right. That, the and, people who were in the know use Zoom. No, you're you're totally right. And I I remember pretty early on, once I was out there, after I had you know dialed one wrong number on a you know twelve digit code to get into a conference call and had to hang up and start again. You know, I was like, Hey, Keith, CTO, what do you think about Zoom? And he was already looking into it, of course. So we, we actually got off to a really fast start when COVID truly hit at Tombris. But Early adopters. Yeah, but um, but yeah, the first like six months that I was out in LA, I felt very isolated. Disconnected from the team. And it, and it, it was, it was work-related. It was, you know, I had lived in Knoxville at the time for like, I don't know, 33, 34 years. Right. Never lived anywhere else. Um really like a cripplingly uh extroverted social dependent person so going with no from, friends <laughs> zero friends yeah. basically in on the west work Coast. hard yeah no it like when i moved out there we knew we knew a handful of people i mentioned um before we started recording josh lowry yeah um one of our mutual friends certainly like josh is a guy who i've met through you um and and know, knew a little bit, but I knew him enough to want to hook up with him once I got out to LA. Right. And it's never happened. And that's, I found over- It's easy to do. It's it's crazy how um, kind of like siloed the different neighborhoods in LA can be, right? It's such a well, hassle. They're a half hour town. apart at the wrong time of day. Even your neighbors uh, are on yeah, a half more, hour away. You yeah. know, shit. Like we, we moved into a apartment out there that was one mile from Lauren's office. And during morning rush hour, it took 25 minutes to drive that mile. Yeah. You could walk slower than walk drive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was really awful. Uh, COVID cleared up the traffic a bit. Uh, Yeah. I bet it did. Um, a lot to begin with. And then by the time things were kind of clearing up in 2021, it was like probably not as bad as it was before, but still a pretty huge pain in the ass to get from one side of the town to the other. So when Josh Lowry was, was here, uh, mm-hmm. on the show, he, he talked about something that I hadn't really heard. I mean, I'd heard about it in like big swaths. I hadn't heard like an acute or specific story about it, but he said that when COVID started, uh, and just everything, just regulation or, or at least law enforcement kind of got rolled back. He said that uh, Venice Beach, where he lives, just became a camp of yeah. people 
of homeless folks in tents because there was no law enforcement at all. They weren't about to roll up to anybody and tell them to do anything other than what they were doing because they didn't have a better alternative to offer them. Right. Uh, they didn't want to put them in jail. We can't, we can't put people in jail. They'll get COVID and die. Did you see any of that where you were living? Did you see like a, a, a massive like societal change in the streets of LA when you, when COVID started? Yes and no. What's really interesting about LA is how distinct different neighborhoods can be mm-hmm. with respect to their approach to the homeless, they, you know, the homeless population. All the cities have their own kind of city councils and, right. and, and different uh, bureaucracy in place. We were in Culver city and they have their own police department. Yeah. Like if I get a ticket in Culver city, I go to the like Culver City Superior specific, Court, yeah, Superior Court, yeah. right? which is interestingly in Santa Monica, as they just share <laughs> share a building. Um, Santa Monica is the same, right? Santa Monica is yeah. like a, a distinctive city, but Venice it, is just L.A. County. Venice is L.A. County, and, yeah. And um, the way the way that it was most visible is if you were riding your bike up the Strand, like up uh, from say Marina del rey through venice up to santa monica yeah that's the section he was talking about yeah you'll see like when the when you cross the border from venice into santa monica it was just a night and day change you go from um from literally just continuous it's like a like a row of townhouses but they're they're coleman tents you know on the beach in venice to uh to santa monica which is you know, like the, I guess, irrigated grass, kids, you know, jumping rope in the field, you know, families with blankets spread out. It's definitely the bougie, it's really the bougie weird. part of, of, I mean, all the way up the coast right there and in, in, uh, on the west side of L.A., like that's really the nicest kind of beach neighborhood until you get into the Uber money of right. Malibu and right. the rest of that stuff that's north of it. But everything south of there, all the way from south of Santa Monica to the airport and south of the airport in particular, uh, is just like, yeah, unregulated kind of it's unregulated, county land. But, but, you know, Venice, here, here's the thing about like the, the, the homeless community in LA is like, it's a fucking community, right? So like everybody, Everybody lived in Venice because everybody lived in Venice. Like there were actual like communes essentially operating during COVID of people who had, they they went from like the odd person down on the luck who has a tent and a bike and, you know, like a, a shopping cart with their belongings to, oh, that's like a complex, you know? What they do you became, mean a complex? Uh you know, it's like 15, it's like a dozen tents stitched together by tarps and, ah, and, uh, you're and, saying and so gates. Like they would actually create perimeters for their property, for their property. Wow. Okay. In an area. And, and it, yeah, just like things blew up and, and, and this is not unique to LA, you know, like there are communities like this in in San Francisco and Seattle, Vancouver, you know, yeah. these are just places I've been the last three years that I've been. And you've um, witnessed the same. Kind I, of thing. And, and it was, it was something that certainly in my experience has been unique to the West coast. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with just 
how hospitable it is to live outside oh, in yeah. Los Angeles County. Like you could not find a better place in the world to live year round. Absolutely. When it's cold, it's 40 degrees. Like or when it's cold, it's 48 degrees. And when it's hot, it's 91 degrees. You well, know? Like well, it's just easy to survive there. Josh Lowry, his place that, <clears throat> that he bought the, uh, his condo, which is on Speedway, boulevard or avenue the the the, mm, the oh yeah that's yeah on really super that's cl- on the beach it's on the beach yeah God, and man. he he <clears throat> bought like right. a well yeah he bought like a 600 square foot maybe mm. 700 square foot condo there when he when he was a single man uh and it was small but well appointed yep on the beach you walked out you could look off his balcony and see the pacific ocean and the venice beach boardwalk and all that he did not have air conditioning in his in his Who cares? home, yeah, or a heater, right? Because he didn't need it, yeah. And we're like, "What do you do when it's cold?" He's like, "We got a fireplace. I got a blanket, yeah." You know, like, and it just cold. never gets that bad, yeah. You know, and it's like, wait a second, this is like borderline. Like, you you need a bug net around your bed, pretty much, because you may as well live outside in, right. on the beach in Mexico. Except there's not any fucking bugs, yeah, exactly. you know? Like, what do you need a bug net for? And that's what I, I I talked to a podcast guest recently about it. I was like, that is why, that's why real estate in Southern California is so expensive. Is because you're buying weather. You're not buying. Yeah. You're not buying wood. You're not buying insulation or flooring. You're buying weather. I'm really enjoying, um, and I know they can be destructive. I know that. You know, people can get unlucky, but I'm really enjoying the thunderstorms since being home. You know, are you? Yeah. Yeah. The ones in the summer in East Tennessee are really crazy because they come out of nowhere and they wreck shit so bad. And they they go in every direction. Like today, the storm will be coming from the north and tomorrow it'll be coming from the south. And I saw I saw weather moving like even since I've been back, there was a storm that formed and kind of like strafed from east to west across an Oxford. Oh, wow. I was like, that never is, happens. Yeah. Like, but it, but it does. That's the thing is like anything can, anything can happen with a thunderstorm in the summer in Knoxville. But, um, but I, and we got rained off the lake last or two weekends ago. Dude, right? that was rowdy. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. We scrambled. I was with, uh, our friend Blake and we scrambled off the lake and got back to Duncan. Um, and, got in touch with y'all after and y'all just waited it out under a bridge. <laughs> yeah, we did. We, we, we went, me and the girls went and, uh, got under a bridge and still got a little bit wet and hung out for like an hour. And then there was nobody on the lake after that. So how we, did the, how, how did the girls deal with that? Fine. Yeah. The worst part was Troopers. the, the worst part was cause my boat is like, it, it, at high at at its main like high speed it goes pretty fast and uh-huh. so when when it's raining that just it's like stinging yeah it was yeah. stinging so I was like cover up yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> the girls covered up head with towels to yeah towel. and I headed for the nearest bridge and then we hung out there under the bridge for an hour uh huh there's then, not a bimini top or anything mm-mm. on that thing yeah no and then and then we had a couple other boats pull up underneath and hang out with us and we. There you go. Threw threw him a beer and hung out and had a had had some camaraderie among strangers. <laughs> That's great. I love that. 
the uh, the thing you got to watch out for is the storms that come down from uh, from the north and East Tennessee. You got to watch out for the stuff that comes down from like Lexington and and all that. Those are the ones that wreck your world. Everything comes across the state. Like the mm-hmm. Tennessee's long, and and everything like snow or whatever it is always blows over into the Appalachian Mountains and then goes northeast along the along the contour. Well, the, the one that really sticks out in my mind came from the south, and that's that. Hailstorm. Hailstorm from back in like 20... 2011. 11, is yeah. when it was. It turned everybody's yeah. car into a golf ball mm-hmm. and it... I t- was selling insurance at the time. Oh, wow. Which was... uh, the That's the only time when you want to have an insurance agent and have insurance. You know, like when, when you feel like good that about happens. buying it. Yeah. that's That was kind of like my... Uh, that was my problem with selling insurance is that, you know, 98% of the time you're selling a product that people don't want yeah. <laughs> to them because they know they have to have yeah. it. And it's just like your, your, your clients are all somewhat under duress and it's an intangible thing. You know, it's got like kind of questionable value to a lot of folks. And there's a big role that insurance has and, and Dave Ramsey has a pretty good take on it. I think, you know, that's a polarizing figure as far as money is concerned and sure. And ideals are concerned and religion is concerned. Uh, my favorite Dave Ramsey that. take is that, um, if you have any debt at all, or if you have a student loan, you should never, you should never see the inside of a restaurant. I, He's not wrong. I mean, he's really not wrong. He's a he's an extremist. Live a little, Dave. He is an extremist, yeah. but from a pragmatic standpoint, if if the idea is to not have debt and to not have financial liability, then that is actually probably pretty good yeah. advice. Yeah. You know. He he also comes from he comes from an era like I remember hearing when my parents bought the house that I was, that I grew up in until I was 12, they had like a 17% loan or something yes, like that dude. on their house. So like, yes, he comes from that generation yeah. where like, yeah, money is expensive to borrow. Like yeah. th- this, this stuff can, and, and a lot of people still have that like credit card rate, like credit card interest rates are like abusive. Right. But, um, and if, and if you're in a situation like that, like, yeah, don't, don't go to the restaurant. But if your money costs 4%. Different yeah. story. And yeah. that's that's where his logic doesn't hold up yeah. is if if I'm borrowing money at 4% and I have a $100,000 windfall and I could pay all that money that I owe off and get rid of that 4% interest, whatever it is. Or I could invest it. Or I could invest <laughs> yeah. it and make 7%. Yeah. Like that's – and that my money is more valuable to me not paying off that right. loan. Than it is, yeah. So there's like there's there's some there's some chinks in his armor, some holes in his logic a little bit. Well, I'm sure he would adapt it, you know. But I yeah. I don't think he has. It's a weird. It's I think a, he's always like, I, at least when I took his class, you know, ten mm-hmm. years ago or whatever, it was like, no, debt is not good, it, and and it there ain't. was no there was no there was no ifs ands or buts about it, and you couldn't even make the argument that you should invest money mm-hmm. if you still owed. If you were still in debt, right, right. Even if the even if your investment yield outweighed your 
your interest rate. Your well, debt. he would probably say something like all all interest yield is speculative. You know, investments are speculative. It's not guaranteed money. This sure. is an actual liability. Yeah. It's guaranteed liability. And then whatever. he throws God in there, and everybody yeah. you know <laughs> believes it. Exactly. Yeah. I don't even know how he started talking about that. <laughs> I don't either. But I'm I'm glad that you uh that you're back from Southern California and I know you're there for whatever three and a quarter years you said, three yeah. and a half maybe. Get but right. you took this like <laughs> you took this big ass road trip on the way back, didn't you? Yeah. Like a circuitous route to get back to yeah, Tennessee. Because it was it was a product of the the great haste with which we moved out there. I mean from the time Lauren got the opportunity to the time we were uh, unpacking our bags in LA was about like 14 days or something like that. So you made so, a quick decision to move out there. There yeah, was no time. Snap, to, yeah. snap decision. Um, it was wild, really nervous about telling my family, like it was a, it was a big deal. And, and my mom, I'll never forget was like, we, we went to dinner at their house to tell them and, you know, they barely knew Lauren, right? We we just been yeah. dating for such a short period right. of time, and uh, and I was like, "Mom, we're we're gonna." She got this job, and we're gonna move. We're gonna move to L.A. And Mom was like, "Of all the things she could have said, she was like, Lauren, I am so proud of you. Like, what an incredible opportunity. That's pretty like, cool. No, it, like you just expect. Well, like." have you, are you sure that's the right thing? Or, you know, like all this speculation or consternation or. Well, she was proud of somebody else rather than yeah, like focusing on. about her on, son moving. Yeah. Or herself, like her own feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't battling her own feelings at that point yeah. and trying to defend what she thought she was going to lose, which was, uh, you know, her son, which, you know, you guys are, are so tight of a Man. family. Yeah. That's, that says a lot that's, about it. That's a, a honestly person. like. She's awesome. Both my parents are awesome, but like that's that's why we're so tight. That's the type of that's the type of like um, gracious and like forgiving spirit that makes you want to come back. You know, yeah. Like it's it's not overbearing. But anyway, we uh yeah we moved we moved so quickly. We drove. I think it took us like two and a half days. We stayed. That's pretty quick. We stayed in Oklahoma City our first night. That's a long drive. Which is a, a funny story, actually. And then we stayed in Flagstaff, and then we were in L.A. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely hauled ass. Um, and so, because of that, we were like, when we move back, whenever that is, we're going to take our sweet-ass time, and we're going to see all the things that we missed on the way out. You know? Yeah. So. Well, where'd you go when you left L.A.? Did um, did you have like a a, a U haul or something that was had already gone ahead? You'd sent the movers on, yeah, we, and then you guys just had a vehicle. It was necessary. Yeah, we've got we've got two two dogs, two great dogs that are uh, a twelve year old deaf, like born deaf, Catahoula, um, and uh, and Alvin, a five year old Aussie, Alvin Camara. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so we, we knew we wanted to do the trip with them. We shipped our stuff back to Knoxville. Fortunately had an, an empty, empty house to land it in back here. Yeah. The house that you've owned forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, we took off from LA and went to kind of the idea was to see 
we, we went the northern route um, from LA and we wanted to see a lot of natural national parks, which was kind of a challenge because of the dogs, because most national parks yeah, don't, don't allow, allow you to, you know, take dogs on trails and stuff. Shoot. We did find out, and this is for anybody listening, who's thinking about doing something like this, like it's not that they stop you at the gate at a national park and like, does that a dog in your car? No, turn around. Like, which honestly I thought might've been the case, but all the national parks for the most part, allow dogs in the park, allow dogs around like the parking areas that, you know, the, the, you know, bathroom facilities, the, the pull-offs for scenic views mm. and stuff like that, that are just kind of like proximate to the road. You can get your dog out and walk around a leash. And that's, that's what we did. In a lot I didn't of cases. know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess they have to be, uh, they, they, they have to be, uh, be able to accommodate yeah. Yeah. transient travelers. Right. right, right. Yeah. People who are on the road for long periods of time, like sure. us. So, yeah. um, so yeah, we, we ended up doing Yosemite, um, which is just a spectacular national park. Have you been to Yosemite? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's, did you guys we, go to Big Sur or any of the Carmel? We didn't, stuff? but we'd done Big Sur on okay. a previous trip. Um, so we did Yosemite, we did San Francisco, uh, hooked up with our friends, John and Mary Gill, um, who are from elsewhere, but lived in Knoxville for several years. We made, you're, they're super tight friends of ours. Um, they moved out there maybe six or eight years ago. Um, John works for Google, uh, in like security, which is a pretty cool ass job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and- like cybersecurity or like like I couldn't tell you exactly gun what on he the works hip on. I think I think that no no cyber cybersecurity <laughs> okay. certainly between the two. I certainly couldn't tell you like the details of what he does. Yeah. But um smart dude and then Mary's uh Mary's been in uh like solar and alternative energy cool battery storage stuff. Yeah. Um she's uh super impressive and successful as well and, and they've been out there for a long time and we hooked up with them in San Francisco and then drove up to Cloverdale. Where's uh, that? It's kind of uh, like Sonoma County, Napa okay. area. Yeah, um, north, one of, of, north the, of one of the town. Yeah, one of the lesser known little towns. Like Sausalito or yeah, something it's, like that. Yeah, it's like, I think Heldsburg is one that's a little bit, um, is it Burgerville? Anyway, one of the more popular ones up there, but um, they've got a house up there with a little vineyard on it. It's gorgeous. And, uh, Lauren and I decided to, to go on and, and get married there with, uh, with our friends, John and Mary. You tied the knot in yeah, Cloverdale. So, um, Mary, when we were thinking about, you know, this idea of elopement on the way home, we, I thought about John and Mary because Mary is ordained. Um, she got a marriage license, or I guess you don't call it a marriage license. She got her ordination ordination licensure um a few years ago to do a friend's wedding and i and i asked her if she had renewed it and she had so it's like by god we can we've got friends who are who one of whom is an ordained minister the other certainly could be a witness and they own a house with a vineyard on it (laughs) should we be crazy not to absolutely so and and we love lauren and i have loved the uh kind of like the the symbolism of our you know dating for five months i don't know if i mentioned that but like we'd only been dating for five months yeah you before. said that when you introduced yeah. your mom 
Exactly. Or when yeah. you guys were tell- talking about moving that they hadn't known her that long. Yeah. So five months dating in Knoxville, moving out as like these two kind of, it's like a new relationship and, uh, and then coming back, making our, 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 our journey back to the homeland with as, as a unified pair. You yeah. Know? So, that's pretty cool. That's good symbolism. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that and that was great. It's beautiful. Um, I, I officiated a wedding in California one time. Did you really? I officiated Josh Lowry's wedding. Oh, no way. In Ojai. There were about, I don't know, a hundred people there or something like that. And there's, wow. so California is a little- be a great wedding officiant. I've done two of them now. Yeah. Yeah. His, do you still have your license? Um, yeah, we, well, we to do the to do the California do a thing, Redux, you know, <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, I I do. I did the Universal Life Church thing for the Tennessee wedding mm-hmm. that I officiated, but the one in California was actually hard. Like I had to, um, I had to go to the courthouse in Ventura County, which is the county they were going to get married in, mm-hmm. and I had to apply to become a temporary wedding officiant. And what it, and it's not like a church thing. It's not a religious thing. Temp, temp it's like job a, it is. For, it's a si- it's a civil yeah. designation. Ultimately, uh-huh. is what it is. And so they, you, you apply for it, and then they grant you the privilege to officiate one wedding on one day in wow. one year, and then you and then you're you're okay. Your signature is good on right. that wedding certificate for that one wedding, and that's it. And that's what I did for Josh Lowry's wedding. the uh, the one in the one that I officiated in Tennessee was a different story. It was just like, you know, get on the spaghetti and meatballs church app, and, yeah, you know, <laughs> get the you know get the dude abides or whatever, right. you know, <laughs> get a get a get a get a fake thing and it's and fine the, and it works and it went and yeah that'll work did you say the unitarian church or something no like uh the uh universal life church gotcha, is what it's gotcha, called gotcha, yeah, yeah no it's like uh the uh the requirements for that are do you have an email address <laughs> yes yeah would you like to create a password <laughs> yes i would Excellent. You're, you're our newest. You know, it's, it was a similar process for registering Alvin as a therapy dog at some point, I think. I was going to say, it, does, does that not get you into the national parks? Yeah, no, uh, I think it could, but I've yeah. always, I, I think I paid maybe 60 bucks at one point in time to, when we were moving, I think it was when we were moving out West and I was like, maybe I'll put him on a plane sometime. And, uh, you know, first of all, that dog does not belong in a plane. He, um, he's high strung. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's less so now, but like even now, not, not great plane material. But, um, I remember it being super easy, but as soon as, um, as soon as I filled out the forms, I started getting a ton of solicitation emails from, uh, from like mental health resources. Ah, yeah. Um, which, which, I, which actually, I mean, shit, I appreciate that, you know? Like, well, I mean, they're, it's, it's a lead for right. them, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's so, someone, someone has obviously, uh, 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 admitted that they, they need emotional support. Let's, let's use that there, as a lead. That's the, uh, the enablement for greasing the wheels of the transaction of me getting him designated as a therapy dog with just a couple, you know, easy questions. Yeah. But, there you go. But anyway, yeah, we from from the wedding in Cloverdale, we promptly caught COVID, both of us. Oh and, no! Um, After your wedding, or like at your wedding, you got COVID. We <laughs> in it, it must have we must have contracted it at our you know seven our wedding where seven people were in attendance. We had a couple caterers, um, just like or like a I should say like a personal chef who came and cooked dinner, and um, 
and a photographer, but like, who knows? In 50 years, when you look back at your nuptials, like how 2022 is it to catch yeah, COVID at your had, wedding? It like had it's going to happen. It had to happen. It had to happen. Yeah, and we did. had avoided it in Los Angeles. Did you really? That was the first time you'd for, gotten it? Yeah, for three years, whatever. Yeah, but we, we got COVID. Um, we went, we had a great drive from there, from Cloverdale up through, up to like Klamath, California, which is near um, Humboldt. Oh, that's State way Park, north. Which is like the, the giant redwoods area. Yeah. Trinity County, like way north. I, I don't know Trinity County. Anyway, that way. Yeah. We stayed in a, in a, in a mobile home, which was like maybe one of the better stops of any really? Airbnb that we had. It was just so cozy. Um, and then we went to Portland, um, spent Portland in quarantine essentially, which sucked because I could tell that I really liked the town. Like we, we got takeout, we got contactless takeout and walked the dogs is basically what we did in, in Portland. Right. But, um, love the vibe. A lot of people told us like, Oh, Portland, I could have heard it was really bad there. And we saw, we saw nothing of that, frankly, in Portland. It you just, didn't see what the news said. We did not see it. We did not see, um, the same, Portland that Fox News sees um, while we were there. Right. But um, from Portland, we went to this little place called Packwood, Washington, which is kind of at the in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, I think, um, to those like vol- dormant volcanic peaks yeah. in central kind of western Washington. Um, then to Seattle. Had a great time in Seattle. Um, Glacier National Park. That's in Montana, killer. right? Yeah, that was that was probably our one of our biggest drives um, from Washington Seattle, to Montana, Seattle to Glacier. Yeah, yeah. So uh, apparently, <laughs> Bozeman is seeing a huge influx of Pacific Northwesterners mm-hmm. that are moving there because it's a really short flight and it it's also drivable. Yeah, there's a lot of tech money and Seattle specifically. I can so, see that. Like, I bet the. I bet the drive to Bozeman is not all that different from the drive from Seattle to uh, to, Glacier. to Glacier because you just cut right across Idaho. Like yeah. there's not really any major landmark to Did you diversion. stop in Yellowstone or no? We did. And in fact, um, so after Glacier, we hit Bozeman, then um, Cody, Wyoming, visited a friend, uh, a local friend. Actually, do you know the, the Brooks family? Do you know um, – uh, Mari or Chris Brooks are the parents, and then um, Katie, Karen, and Paul Brooks, Mm-mm. the kids. Anyway, no. great, awesome family um, from from West Knoxville. He went to West High School, but uh, we we visited Karen Brooks, who's uh, a I long know, time. I know Karen. You know Karen Brooks? Yeah, I do know Brooks McWhorter. Yeah, yeah, I so do she, know her. She yeah. she lives out in Cody, Wyoming. She's a um, former curator now I, I guess she just is transitioning into a new role um, administration uh, in administration of the wild hold on Buffalo Bill Center for the West it's a massive massive museum in and that's Cody, in Cody mm-hmm. and we stayed there where um, you know she kind of showed us the ropes in Cody oh, that's and awesome. we used Cody as our kind of base camp for Yellowstone Hmm. And when we were in Yellowstone was the week 
before those massive storms hit and knocked out all those roads, which is really sad. Did you see that? Uh, where the bridges washed down the Madison River and the Yellowstone River? Bridges, but also just roads. Houses. Like roads, houses, everything. Yeah. Like it, it, the river kind of snakes along. The, the, I should say the road follows the river right. as you're coming into Yellowstone from the northern entrance. And from the Livingston, or the, yeah, the, the north, what is it? north entrance. Uh, Gardner. Gardner mm. entrance, I yeah. think is what it's called. But, um, but anyway, yeah, we drove on all those roads coming in from Bozeman from the north um, the week prior to those storms hitting. And they were washed wild. out. I mean, that was when you saw houses literally floating down the Yellowstone River. Yeah. It's a, they say a 500 or a thousand year flood. Yeah. Completely wild. And um, glad, glad we missed it. Um, also devastating. Personally. Um, and completely tragic yeah. that, that that happened to the park. And I don't know how long it's going to take to rebuild that stuff. I mean, I it mean, was forever. Yeah. I mean, it took, took so long to build it in the first place. And, <laughs> and that stuff is things that they never thought were going to happen. I know the park, fortunately they were able to open up a lot of the park, um, via the Eastern and Southern, like next to the Tetons entrances, because I actually just had some friends who I saw posting pictures from there like yesterday. Um, but anyway, that, that storm. So after Cody went, we went east to Sheridan, uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, which is just on the other side of the Bighorn National Forest, which, oh my God, like one of the best kept secrets in America. Was that a highlight of the trip? Truly. yeah, Yeah. Like the, there's this little town called Shell, Wyoming and coming from Shell, there's the Shell River or they... I don't even call it the river. It's like Shell Creek, but dude, the creeks in the West are, <laughs> are, raging. are powerful, yeah. raging things. But the Shell Creek just has carved this unbelievable canyon through this this little strip of mountains in, in central Wyoming. It's called and, Bighorn? Um, the Bighorn National Forest, okay. yeah. And it's just- I'm going to put it on you the gotta, list. You got to go there at some point. I, I never even knew it existed until we were- Yeah. And actually until we were planning the trip and I talked to Karen and Karen was like, oh, you got to do this drive. And I was like, through the what? <laughs> through the what mountains? Like through the what forest? I've never- Hold on. Let me let me consult Google Maps. But um, that was awesome. But that So that storm, we, we got to Sheridan- and the next day we were supposed to go to Spearfish, South Dakota, near Black Hills National Park, Black Hills National Forest. And we were going to stop. We we're going to drive, you know, 30 miles north off the interstate to see this landmark called Devil's Tower, which is really odd. I've been there. Alien looking. Okay. It's like so a you, cylinder made of red rock. Yeah. In the it's, middle it's of just the wild. Di- like the high desert. Yeah. Or like the wet. The- it looks like something the devil would do. Right. Um <laughs> So we were four miles, I think, from Devil's Tower, and we got a noti- notification on our phone. Um, severe thunderstorm warning, baseball-sized hail. <laughs> and we looked at it. We pulled out. We stopped, pulled over the car. That's something that makes you pull over immediately. Yeah. Hold on. Thankfully, we had cell service there because, like, most of the, you know, Midwest and West is just, like, a complete unreliable dead zone for self-service despite what the coverage maps tell you sure Um, and (laughs) we looked at the storm and it was probably 20 miles north of us where we were and we could see it i mean 
We thought there was it's a thunderstorm. It's all kind of flat. I remember seeing like yeah. the Sleeping Indian and Devil's Tower like long before I got to them. Well, everything in Montana, Wyoming, this like there's Big Sky Montana and I without having remembered that at a certain point driving through Montana, I was like, "Babe, look how fucking big the sky is here." Like you just there's there's just no limit. The air's so clear. The land is both flat and mountainous, you know, like it's just flat for ex- just enormous expanses. And then there's these massive mountains that grow out of it. So you just feel like you can see the curvature of the earth everywhere you go. Um, and that's kind of how it was around Devil's Tower, right? But, but yeah, we saw this storm coming. It was like purple. It was like green, yellow, red purple white is that the radar you're looking at yeah 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 and and is white snow white as hail hail and the the white was very large (laughs) in this particular um uh, i think i think white means rain that is no longer rain right um (laughs) rain that stopped being rain at some point so we being that close we were four miles away from devil's tower we made the executive decision to turn around and drive south away from the storm to get out of it get out of its way and um that day we ended up basically running we did the the inverse twister you know Where you like run we away ran from the storm the fuck away from that thing <laughs> and at a certain point i remember i i got out of the car probably like to knowing me i probably like got out to pee on the side of the road or something like that and the wind was blowing directly towards the storm which just happened to be like uh the storm was to the west of us. So the wind was blowing from east to west. And if the if the wind is going directly towards the storm, I just felt like that was probably not a good sign. Yeah. So we got the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we drove almost like two hours out of our original course. Just to dodge the to storm. To get south. And there were several tornadoes in that storm cell as we cut up through... Um, I think it's called Spearfish Canyon along the Spearfish Creek in Black Hills National Forest, which another incredible drive. Were you guys camping on this trip at all? No, all Airbnb. Really? All Airbnb. We just, I was working during the week yeah. um, for most of the trip. So that was just what worked out. Um, Didn't have time to set up camp and do, <sighs> yeah. put cycles towards making yeah, rely on comfy a, place to sleep. Rely on the, uh, the, the cell service and, and and cell phone hotspots from BLM land and you know exactly yeah middle you need of nowhere to be, you need some Wi-Fi so um but yeah as we drove into Spearfish we pulled over on the side of the road and there were like handfuls of golf ball sized hail on oh the side God. of the road just piled up um and we I mean we missed it we saw it like thank goodness for for the Weather Channel app and uh. And for Google Maps for like giving us some some visibilities to where we needed to go, but like we got we dodged it, and then Spearfish was beautiful, um, Rapid City, South Dakota, saw Mount Rushmore, all that stuff. Oh, nice. Um, and then hit Kansas City. Well, hit um, Broken Bow, Nebraska to visit Lauren's grandmother, who I'd never met. Um, she's awesome. Put Surprised her with a ring. <laughs> yeah, honestly, we did. She we did not know we were married when That's we showed great. up. She is really gracious. She's she was a really it was such an awesome experience meeting her because 
you kind of have she's very secluded um broken bow is you know three thousand people she lives there alone um Lauren's granddad died like 16 years ago or something like that. Oh, wow. She's just, and most of her family lives like close, but you know, is that like, where she's from? She's from Nebraska. Uh, no. So her dad is originally from Nebraska, but her okay. dad was in pharmaceutical sales and traveled kind of all over. So she's lived in military brat. <laughs> yeah. She was born in Colorado, lived in, in, uh, where Indiana, Illinois, like Baltimore area, um, Virginia, South Florida, all over the place. Yeah. Everywhere. Tennessee. She made it to Tennessee. So the promised land. Um, yeah, her grandmother, you just expect people in middle of America who are, um, you know, kind of cut off from the major metropolitan areas to be like, closed minded, you know, like we, we were like coming in and Lauren hadn't seen her in in a long time. It's like, she going to be like put off by the fact that we just eloped and she didn't know about it. That was our first concern. She wasn't, she was like, that's so great guys. Congratulations. Um, and then we were, I remember the weekend we were there, it was, um, Juneteenth celebration. And she was like, just matter of factly, she was like, did you all did y'all know about Juneteenth, this new holiday? And we were like, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we, like my company started, you know, celebrate or like recognizing Juneteenth last year. And it was, you know, the, the actual date that the slaves were freed after the Emancipation Proclamation. It's really, and she was like, yeah, I think that's really nice. Like, that's great. And it's just like, not what you expect yeah, to you're hear. Like, Where am I? Yeah. This is, this she is was not- like, I think, I think that's really good. And I was like, what? <laughs> so no, it was, it was really awesome to, to get to meet her. She's 90 years old. So, you know, I can't believe she lives by herself in the middle of a, a 3000 person town and just, yeah, just killing it. Yeah. Just, just does her. She's got a routine. She's, you know, seems to be. I'd Seems last about four hours in a place like that. I'd before. go stir crazy for sure. Too. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure I would be. She uh, was real. She was real upset with me for throwing off her routine by insisting on doing the dishes and stuff like that. Oh, really? She was like, I do the dishes. And I was like, well, you're not going to today. <laughs> you know? Not on Juneteenth, yeah. you're not. <laughs> exactly. Where'd you go from there? Nebraska. Oh, no, Kansas City. We were, we were on a sprint at this point once, to get back home. I yeah. feel like once that happens, once you... It, Anytime I go through the West, like especially in a, you know, driving through the West, it's always like a sprint to get there and get to the good stuff and then mm. start playing around once you're in it. Yeah. And then on the way back, it's the exact opposite. You're, you're once you spend some time in it. And then once you get to Kansas City, it's like, all right, where's St. Louis? Yeah. All right. Where's yeah. Nashville? Where's Dude, Knoxville? Let's we, go. Home. Yeah. We, we enjoyed Kansas City a lot. I think Kansas City was one of the big surprises of the trip. Um, just cause I didn't really have expectations going in. It's a really cool city. I actually had a very Knoxville vibe. It's, you know, three times the size of Knoxville probably, but, yeah. but it, it had kind of a smaller town feel. Went to one of the cooler jazz bars, bars period that I've ever been to in, in Kansas city, which I didn't really realize has such a rich blues and jazz background. Gotcha. Like that's, it's like a hotbed for incredible 
um, blues and jazz music, but there's a bar there called the Green Lady Lounge. And it looks like, from the outside, it looks basically just like a white cinder block building, nondescript, little green awning, um, no glitz or glamour. And you get inside and it is just this lush, lavish, dark, you know, kind of like red glowing lounge with um, two floors, uh, massively long bar. Think like Barley's Bar but twice as long Keeps right going yeah yeah um and uh and just excellent excellent jazz music on two levels right so that's super band cool. playing up two bands played upstairs two bands played downstairs while we were there just really cool so we uh when i think it was last summer uh nick spar and mm-hmm. uh and his wife that is his parents were uh they got a new vehicle at their house in uh, Big Sky, Montana. And so we went up there to help them uh, bring the old vehicle home. Mm-hmm. So me and Sarah flew out there with them. And the the whole – it's like, all right, let's spend four days in Montana, five days in Montana. And then the end of the trip is us driving this 1999 Suburban, mm-hmm. Chevy Suburban, <laughs> back from Montana to Knoxville. And uh, we had a great time in Montana, had the time of our lives. And then – we got in the Suburban to leave and drive home and we left, I, I want to say we left Big Sky at like 11 o'clock in the morning and it was like, all right, this is a 36 hour drive from Big Sky to, to Knoxville or 32 no. hours, something like that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. So you split that up, divided by four, that's, you know, eight hours a piece, whatever. It's a, it's a 32 hour drive. And so I started driving and I was like, I'm just not going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to drive That's as I much I drive. as yeah. I can. We have to get home. I'm going to do it as much as I can. And I started driving at like noon on the day we left. And I got out of the driver's seat at one o'clock in the morning after 13 hours of driving in like, I, I want to say we'd, we'd gone through Montana. We'd gone through South Dakota. We'd almost made, we've gone through Iowa at this point and, uh, yeah, got out at one o'clock in the morning at a gas station and Nick got in the driver's seat and started driving. And we, uh, we got to, I, I went to sleep and I woke up at like seven o'clock in the morning and we were in Kansas city and wow. he had pulled into this, uh, he had pulled into this coffee shop and we roll up for breakfast and it felt like, it felt like I was at K-Brew. Like it, it oh, just, yeah. it felt yeah. familiar. Yeah. Like everything about the town felt familiar. It was a big city with big infrastructure. Might have been like messenger coffee or something like, anyway, Maybe. yeah, there's some great, there's some awesome places there. Yeah. But I did get a Knoxville vibe from it, yeah. which was weird. There's one place in particular. Um, It's right on the river, right? So like it's got that in common with the Knoxville. There's, there's one area in Kansas city where you drive like it was just an intersection and I looked around and I was like, there's historic buildings here. We're looking downhill at a river or like, you know, it's, you can't see the river, but you know, it's there. You yeah. Know, you can, you can feel see it the coming. cut in the canyon. You can feel it coming. Yeah. And there's a dog park here. And I was like, I feel like I'm on central and summit Hill right now. Really? Or, you know, like gay street and summit Hill anyway. Yeah. yeah. Take a bathroom break? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, we're back. You're you're talking about coming coming down the valley in uh 
in uh, Kansas City and 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 seeing a seeing a, th- a thing that looked familiar. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It uh, it just struck me as as very Knoxville. And then there's all these other things that you find in Kansas City that Knoxville has, like the 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 little like great bakery coffee shop. They've got one called Messenger and I. Ibis, maybe, uh, bakery that's like kind of reminiscent of Wild Love. Although I will say, I just a shameless plug for Wild Love. Um, being in LA, traveling quite a bit for work, um, going all over the country, you know, Tartine, wherever, like all these famous bakeries. Like honestly, we have something truly special in Wild Love in Knoxville. Really? Like, yeah it's really hard to find comparable baked goods anywhere in America. There was one place in Seattle in like the Ballard neighborhood. Oh God, I'm not going to be able to remember it. In Seattle? In in Seattle, in Ballard. And um, maybe it'll come to me later, but we f- we found one place on the trip. It was always like, an objective for each new place we stopped. It's like, who who's going to have like the best pastries? Because that's what you that's what you do when you're on road trips is you kind of like get rid of all of your um, healthy eating, healthy drinking, you know, uh, fitness regimen goals, and you just say, "I'm on you know, vacation." Screw it for yeah. however long nine weeks we yeah. were on the road, but. Um, yeah, we found a really great place in Seattle. We'd always go looking and just very, very few places hold a candle to the to wild love. So, I, I, I agree. And and Java too. S- yeah. Solid. Yeah, well, I mean, wild love is Java. Java is wild love. Yeah. Um but uh yeah, Java, which we haven't like to I know I know we're bouncing around a ton, but um but uh you had Josh on, right? Manus. Josh Manus, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like and I saw the Game Night Budro album up on the wall. Yeah. Um, but uh but yeah, I remember Java is like just the Mecca, <laughs> the early Mecca of of indie rock emo music in Knoxville. And yeah. I spent so much time going to shows at Java. Yeah, they would let like high school bands play there. Yeah, just yeah. set up in the corner. That was and... that was that was us. No, I wasn't in the band. I was watching the band. Sure, and but, they um... and it made sense because they would do it at night after they you know they make all their money during the day with people coming to and from downtown and totally being a coffee shop that serves a walkable area. And at night, that's just like you know that's free, not a time free that people... money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You want to bring twenty five high schoolers in here to watch a punk show? Do it. Twenty five. Shit. I mean. We packed that second room in Java out so many times. It would be so hot and sweaty in there. That you'd have to go out to the street and watch the band like from behind them in the window. You could hear it. Yeah. Yeah. You could certainly hear it. Sometimes they'd open the door, right? Yeah. Let the noise spill out into the street. But yeah, lots of, lots of good vague memories from back then. Say vague memories, not because I was, you know, fucked up, but because, (laughs) man, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And I got a not great memory to begin with, but, um, Sarah and I went on a date night, uh, last week and we went to the, uh, Smokey's cigar bar where, where Manus is, 
is hanging out these days. Yeah, out out just past the mall. Is that where yeah, it is? Yeah, it's next to the mall. It's on my I need to road. go see him. Dude, it's awesome. They have just built this like cigar club room mm-hmm. where you you know you have to be a paying member. It's like a couple hundred, maybe three hundred bucks a year, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, to have uh, access to the club. That's great. And it's like yeah, it's a brick and mortar. Like walk in, buy a beer, buy a cigar spot. But then two thirds of the place is now this super plush lounge lounge yeah, with that's great. with cigar lockers and you can keep your liquor in there and there's a there's a you know a, a kitchenette and you, you you bring your own stuff in and and just put your dishes in the sink when you're done and watch the games you can smoke in there you can wow. you can hang out it's so cool Dude, man what a great spot it's so cool and it's got such out. a cult following which is crazy it's like the cigar crowd which i'm not a huge cigar person, but I've become more of one since I've become familiar with Smokies and, and Manus's, you know, Josh Man, Manus's wish, attachment to that place. I so wish that I had the palate for cigars. The palate for <laughs> cigars. Like, I'm, I'm glad actually that I don't have the palate for tobacco in general. Um, I try, like, actually, um, never really like tried to smoke in earnest, but every time I've ever hit a cigarette, I just get nauseous, like yeah, un- uncomfortably nauseous enough to like drive me away from it, make me yeah. not want to do it. The and fir- I mentioned this to my dad um, many, many years ago, and he was like, "Ah, oh, you must have got that from me." And I was like, "What?" And he was like, "Oh gosh, yeah." I've tried to smoke for years, like, I, and I just can't yeah, do it. <laughs> seriously, he was like, when I was like, I don't know how old he said he was. Sorry, Dad, but I mean, he. I think he said like when I was like thirteen, fourteen years old, it was just, you know. Smoking was only cool. It wasn't unhealthy yet, right? Like mm-hmm. pre, pre us finding out about what smoking can do. Um, he was like, it was just cool. So naturally, I wanted to smoke. So I tried to smoke, and I think he told me that he smoked like, you know, he smoked like a pack a day for like a month. And every time he smoked a cigarette, he got sick. Yeah, but he was committed to it because it was so dang cool. Yeah, and. It just didn't take, you know, like it just wasn't for him. And I think I got some of that because I, I definitely had my opportunities to, to get hooked on it, drinking through college and it never, never worked. And with cigars, um, I know you're not supposed to inhale cigars, but you inhale enough. So if I smoke a quarter of a cigar, I'll start to just like not feel great. Yeah. So yeah, I've I've got a bit of a love hate relationship with tobacco myself. Like I'll yeah. I'll I'll use it here and there, and when when the when the when the time is right, but not like I'm not going to smoke a Camel Light, hmm. you know. But I might. I've got standards. <laughs> well, I mean, I might have like a hand rolled cigarette every now and then, and take a take a, a little bit of a, a tobacco, you know, the tobacco intake right here and there. Right. I feel like it's a it's it's a it's a drug like coffee is. You know, I do I do. Um... It's pleasing. It, I it's endorphin uh, releasing. I haven't done it in a while, but I I do like you know just the one big drag off a cigarette, get dizzy for fifteen seconds, and then you know yeah. all night kind of wakes you up <laughs> a bit. It's like whipping. I actually <laughs> I actually heard on a podcast another podcast recently. Um, it was like there's this awesome, super, like quite nerdy podcast called the Andrew Andrew Huberman podcast. It's a neuroscientist ophthalmologist from uh, heard of it from stanford phenomenal 
um, intellect and communicator. Highly recommend that podcast. But um, he was talking about uh, how nicotine, they've done studies and nicotine intake actually really, really uh, facilitates learning. Mm. So, um, you know, if you're trying to memorize things, if you're studying for something, if you're learning a language, whatever, like that, like it activates a certain part of your prefrontal cortex that like really, really amplifies or like accelerates your ability to retain information, but they can't study it. This is like an early like indication, but they can't study it because it is not, um, I guess it's not like morally appropriate to conduct studies where they're giving people nicotine because it is so addictive. Like there's all these uh, there's externalities, too like there's too much baggage with the, yeah. with the chemical and they can't, they haven't figured out a way they haven't figured out a, uh, you know, a different distillation of the drug or of the, of the chemical to right. make it non-addictive to be able to safely study it without right. giving you the negative byproducts. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, but maybe one day they will and, and we'll all be on, uh, whatever the limitless drug and it'll be just be like Adderall (laughs) Adderall spliced with nicotine Uh, which is how most college students get their get through classes yeah I wasn't in college enough to get hooked on Adderall I uh I I never (laughs) I never uh I I never uh needed it bad enough I certainly I I do think um so I'm like diagnosed ADD at this point and um but I really only need medication when I'm not under the severe stress that I generally am day in, day out. I'm like kind of propelled by necessity through my work days where like I have to get shit done all the time. And it, and so that, that acts as the drug for you. Your, your, yeah, it's your like, drive. It's, it's like, it's all the motivation I need. But on, if I ever have a day where I don't have anything that needs to get done, I am, very ineffective we'll say and yeah but um that said like i totally think that adderall is like a a performance enhancing drug it totally for, is man you know i uh you know i i talked to my parents about this the other day and i hated to admit it to them because i felt like i was you know doing something awful but uh when i was in high school like my my brother uh Amos? Yeah, Amos Mm -hmm. is diagnosed with ADHD or was as a Mm -hmm. child ADHD and uh, was prescribed, I think, you know, Ritalin, Concerta. He he was always on uh, those. Stratera. I tried that. I I don't think he ever got on Stratera. I think it was all amphetamine because Stratera Mm -hmm. is Stratera amphetamines. No, it's I had my uh, my doctor at the time was like, (laughs) honestly, to his credit, it's probably a good thing. But he was very against prescribing um, amphetamines to children, uppers to children. Yeah. yeah. So, well, well, my brother was on Adderall his entire life, like yeah. from from being a, like an elementary school kid. Mm-hmm. He was he was taking amphetamines that were prescribed by a doctor in order to help him perform better in school. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to my parents the other day. It was almost like getting something off my chest. I was like, I took. I took his medicine in high school <laughs> and, and I did it on a couple of occasions. And one of those occasions was I had, I was taking chemistry for the second time 
in high school because I had made a D in chemistry the first time I had taken it because it was fucking hard. And I did not, I was not a person who did a lot of homework and and, (laughs) uh, didn't want to do the work really because I, I felt like the concepts interests I did have other interests and I wanted to do what was uh, what moved the needle the most as far as like getting, getting things done and, and passing chemistry to me was not important. So I, I, I made a bad grade. I made a D in chemistry. So I, I did not want that on my high school transcript. And if you made a D in a, in a subject in at our it. high school, no, you didn't have to, but you could, right, right. if you made a C, you couldn't retake it. But if you made a D, you could retake it and improve your grade. Mm. So I took chemistry again the next year because I did not want to have a D on my high school transcript because everything else was A's and B's. And and so I wanted to, I wanted to fix that thing. So we were, we were coming down to the uh, final, the last, uh, the last week of, of classes, my junior year in high school. And I, I had like a, I had a low D in chemistry. I had made a D again. Oh shit. But I understood that I understood the material. I understood factor labeling. I understood how to do the math to make the stuff work out. I just hadn't done the work to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And so uh I when I went to take my chemistry final, I went in the medicine cabinet at my house and I took one of my brother's time released concerta pills. Mm-hmm. Which was which is Adderall ultimately, but it's released over you know a day right. or whatever. It's in little it's in little balls inside the capsule that your stomach dissolves and it releases them in oh, different. I know the drug you do, <laughs> and so uh, I had I I was sitting in my chemistry final and I was concentrating so hard on this material, this material that I knew, mm-hmm. and I ended up. They allowed you, I think, two hours to take the final. And I took every single bit of it. Everybody else in the class was gone. And I was still there going over every single problem, like going going through it line by line, problem by problem, and making sure that I had every all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. And I was so hyper-focused. I made the highest grade on the final in the class – she said it was the highest grade she'd ever had on the chemistry final. And I raised my my average in that class seven points from a, from a 70 to a 77, which gave me a C. Wow. Which got me out of making having a D on my high school transcript. But it was all because of a drug that legit made me focus so hard on things that I was not about to let anything slip through the cracks or any st- – stone be left unturned yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And it was a cheat code, but I had to do the work, but I already knew it. I already knew the stuff. I just had to focus on it and do it. And the amphetamines gave me the, the power to ultimately do it. And you, you see that with people who continue to use it throughout high school, college and into their careers. They're hyper effective. They're, they're, they're incredibly effective and, uh, it's it's uh you, you gotta ask what the trade off is though. Is yeah, it- well, I mean, I don't know if we know exactly, but I can tell you that I like taking it with an end goal of, you know, performance or 
get, getting back to baseline and ability to hold attention and stuff like that, like feels all right to me. I'll worry about, and certainly I've done this in like a time or two in the past, maybe more, but like looking back now, the idea of taking it to like stay up longer, party harder. I actually, one of, one of the, uh, one of the worst hangovers of my life was the result of me deciding that I needed to take an Adderall at halftime of a UT football game in Charlotte, like not long ago, like four, five years ago. When, the West Virginia game? The West Virginia game, actually. Yeah. yeah. It was the first game of Jeremy got, Pruitt's career. We got a, uh, there was that big storm that came through and postponed yeah. the game for a little yeah, bit yeah, during yeah. that. Every, yeah. It was near halftime, but during that um, yeah. postponement, I was like in the concourse and I was already drunk from, you know, the full day of pregame activities and I was sleepy and I was like, uh, well, matter all prescriptions in my pocket, I could probably just take some matter all and stay up a little bit longer. You the know, game's going to go longer. So tired. The game's going to be late now. <laughs> yeah. Like whatever terrible idea. How, how late were you up? I was... I met up with a friend, um, like as the bars were closing, um, who lives in Charlotte and you were wide awake, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Who was, who was it that I met up with? Oh God. Um, well, you don't have to name drop if you don't want to. <laughs> no, but one of those modern kids, um, not Tyler. What do you mean modern kids? Bruce modern. Oh, Bruce, do you yeah, know Bruce modern? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Met up with Bruce. Who's I thought you meant M O D E R N. No, yeah. no, 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 modern. His last yeah, name no, he, he, who's a hoot. Like, just I love, I love that guy. I love him too. Um, and uh, I met up with him around the time the bar was closing, and went back to his place. And I think we were like playing darts or something. It was like four o'clock in the morning, and I was like, "What am I doing here? Like, I have got." We were leaving at like nine o'clock in the morning the next day to go back home to, to drive back to Knoxville. And it was just a terrible trip, and a couple, couple good. Uh, compassionate friends let me have the front seat of the car so I could recline it and blasted me with air conditioning. I stayed in the car while they went to brunch. <laughs> it was bad. Well, it suppresses your appetite too, right? The Yeah, and I don't remember if I ate anything, um, but I do remember like picking up the pieces the next day and 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 realizing that I'd spent like, certainly not on me, but I'd spent like a hundred 50 bucks at bars like after midnight yeah on that night it was crazy yeah. so it's wild i mean it's it's legal cocaine ultimately yeah or like legal meth or you shouldn't take like it that. at whatever 4 p.m 5 p.m yeah and day. i'm not sure that it really it you know should be taken at all i don't know i, I need to i need to do my research on it but it certainly <laughs> yeah. feels like a little bit of a cheat code mm -hmm. it does it it sure does so you've got some travel coming up and you're getting ready to go to a lot of different places. I think New York is one of them. Oh, uh, yeah, actually I still haven't got that trip booked, but yeah, we, yeah, I mentioned it to you because, um, we were talking about getting on here and talking because I had just been to Las Vegas, uh, last week for a client meeting, which is, which is obviously a place I've been up until last week exclusively for various bachelor parties. Um, and then speaking of stand up till the sun comes yeah, up. Yeah. 
and and I and I didn't this time, but I did go out to a club one night and I got to see um, DJ Diesel, DJ Shaq Diesel, oh. Shaquille O'Neal yeah. perform. Yeah, um, I did not know he was a DJ, but he was the keynote speaker at this conference I was at, and um, got to meet him during the day and got to see him uh, play some dubstep. Was he any night. good? I think so. The truth is that dubstep isn't my genre, right? So, so you I'm probably not the most. I don't have the most discerning palette for 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 the music, but I can tell you that the crowd was into it, and um, Shaq was in his element. And I mean, he's just great, great dude. Like his his talk was great. He was really gracious um, when we met him. Super friendly. Uh, he was asked in an interview while we were there what he wanted his legacy to be because it was it was like a franchise conference for one of our clients and and Shaq owns like sixty something Papa John's franchises and mm. and he was asked obviously you're this you know incredible basketball player multiple championships you've now you've become a really successful businessman uh, what what do you what do you want to be known for what do you want your legacy to be and he was like I want to be known. I want people to look back and say, you know, Shaq was a good guy. <laughs> That's it. That's what I want. Shaq, I love that. Shaq was a good guy. That's. I'm so glad that he said that. Yeah. I, no, I, I would expect a man like him to say that because he has, like, he had a video game on Super Nintendo Shaq called Fu. Shaq Fu. Yeah. I mean, he was just licensing his name out wherever he could. I've got to be, like, in the 95th percentile of total play play time on that game on genesis like, really I, I played it so much and it was a terrible game i don't know why i played it so much but i yeah, did it was like a mortal Kombat, but shaquille o'neal was one of the characters it well i feel like was it it was more uh not mortal Kombat, but i'm thinking maybe i'm just misremembering but i, I would think it like you remember the x-men game where you yeah or, or uh where you kind of walked through a level and beat people up was that what it was like? Maybe. Or? Yeah. I think you may be right. More of like a first person shooter, but you don't have any guns. You just have <laughs> more like an East Shaquille to West. O'Neal. An East to West. <laughs> it's like two dimensional. Battle toads. Yeah. They're a bunch like that. Um but anyway, yeah, well, he was well, great. So you you and I uh we've of course been to Vegas before together, but also uh uh you said you were going to New York? Yeah, going to New York for another client meeting and uh New York was I mean, certainly my favorite trip to New York was for your bachelor party in 2013, I think it was. 2013? Yeah. Man, my buddy yeah. JT, who, uh, God bless him, he's he's a patron for this show. He, 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 uh, he He's a member of the Patreon community. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he is. He listens bless to the him. podcast every week. He's, a, he's the man, dude. What up, JT? Shout out, JT. You know he's listening. You son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Got him, but but uh, how, can you believe that we had a place in New York City that had a backyard? No, I mean his place. His place was um, something that I did not know existed in Manhattan. To that, like, and and I haven't seen anything like it since. Right, I haven't either. It was. I want to say there were like five guys living there. There were five guys in a in a house mm-hmm. or in a in a flat, a first story in, in wall. a in a flat with a like regular sized kitchen and a regular sized living room. Yeah. And a walkout 
half covered patio, half open air backyard courtyard situation with like a couple trees in it. Yeah. It was insane. And it was, you know, if you looked at it from the street side, you'd think it was just another, you know, walk up condo or apartment situation. Yeah. But when you think about people living in Manhattan, you don't think about having a backyard. You don't think about having any kind of space at all. You think about having a Cracker Jack box and he was living the dream at like 25 years old. I think you had to like walk through, like when you went downstairs, I think you did have to maybe walk through somebody else's bedroom in order to get to where JT was staying in the laundry room. Yeah. But, you know. Well, that was that was the early days. He JT, was only paying like nine hundred bucks a month or something at the time. Which I, was I think bargain. total they were paying like seventy five hundred bucks for the whole for the whole place, which is crazy. Like that's so cheap for a five bedroom, right? Like, it is, yeah. <laughs> in it, Manhattan, it is, yeah. Uh, but it was uh, he ended up moving up to the to the main bedroom at some mm. point, and me and Sarah went up for New Year's one year and stayed yeah. with JT, and his girlfriend lived next door. He was like, hey, I'm going to just stay with her. You guys, it's his wife now. They actually got Love married. But, but he was like, just stay with in the, my room. The bathroom with the frosted glass yeah. along yeah. the hallway. I'll yeah. never forget that. Yeah. That was so cool. I mean, dude, that would be a, uh, a $1,500 a night hotel room. For sure. In Manhattan. Yeah. And it was his bedroom. <laughs> it was so free. Great. Yeah. Free. Uh, that was, that, that was a special trip for me, man. And that was, I feel, I feel like that was one of our, like we'd already had a lot of bonding experiences over the year, but that trip to New York uh, was really. It was so fun. And I love, I mean, I love all of our friends that were there, but like your dad being there was super special. Um, yeah. Jenny Andrews going to, Capture photos was super special, you know, like that was kind of like on the front end of, I certainly have some cell phone pictures, but like they were not probably great at that time. That was the early day, earlier days of Instagram. Um, Yeah. And, and phones were taking okay pictures then. mm -hmm. I'll never forget when I asked Jenny Andrews, I was like, Hey, I'm getting like 10 of my friends together and we're going to go to Manhattan and, um, love for you to come up and take some photos of the trip, like across a weekend, like just meet up with us a couple of times and do it and, and take some pictures and we'll, you, you go on your way and do your own thing. And she was like, I think you're out of your mind. And also I'm totally in. Yeah. And <laughs> there were a couple of times that she was following us around where I just looked at her and she was like, you guys are out of your mind. I've got to see, I want to see that whole photo set sometime. You got to, you got to bring yeah, them up. I'm I'll, sure she shared the whole batch with you. Yeah. I think she did. I'll, I'll, I'll Cause share I got the, you. I got the selects, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, it, it, as, as we know in the industry, that's like, you know, Four percent, yeah, 5% of the, of the photos taken. But it's funny. I, I remember using the pictures that she took as like my freaking LinkedIn picture for like five years, probably. Well, she's an amazing like photographer. Yeah. And, and the, the scene was great. Like, yeah, the backdrop was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I just feel bad for subjecting her to that kind of behavior. Oh, I <laughs> think, yeah. Guys, including my dad. Hell, he was as poorly behaved as the rest of us. He always is. <laughs> I love Richard. Uh, my, my friends uh, that own that restaurant, do you remember going to the uh, restaurant in the East Village? Uh, oh, God. It was, uh, it was af- I think it was, it, it was, I think after the, after I'd thrown up at the Radagast 
uh, <laughs> <laughs> on Father's Day. <laughs> if we, <laughs> I think that's the, maybe the only time I've ever vomited in public. <laughs> I didn't. I forgot it was on Father's Day. Oh, my God. I remember. I've got a picture. You threw of, up into your mug. I did. I threw up into the beer stein sitting in the beer garden. It was like oh noon. Oh, my God. I know. It was an awful showing. And that was, was the beginning of the day. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I remember like Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> out going out to the Uber and then going to the East Village and going to my friend's restaurant who's like a Michelin, you know, chef. I, honest to God, do not remember. I might not have gone. Did some of us break off at that point? I don't know. I it's do a not small restaurant, restaurant. But but we but but we went and and some friends of mine, Joe and Jill Tobias, who yeah. congratulations, they just had their second kid. Uh, congrats, they moved Jill out to Long Jill. Island and sold other restaurants and the and names sound really familiar, so maybe I did. They're go. super sweet people in super New York and just mm-hmm. the the like New York has such an incredible energy and vibe, like for for a visitor <laughs> to go up there, I love I love visiting for work and stuff. Going to, I typically stay in Brooklyn when I go up there, and it's just, man, it's different than anywhere else in, in the world that I've found. But, um, I don't think I could live there. I don't think I'm cut out for it. the The thing that's weird to me about New York is like you think about all the the bad things that can happen in the United States and all the high alert kind of stuff we have going on and New York is always since 9/11 on like like oh we're target number That's, 1 yeah. i guess we're you know we're always Who cares have, about the capital exactly when we could have New York City exactly yeah. like we 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 have to always be on thinking in terms of we're the number one target if some kind of uh if some kind of threat happens and so i i always have felt like being you know being here and, be, and not living there uh anytime something bad happens i'm always worried about new york and always mm-hmm. worried about you know this 30 million people who live in that metropolitan area who are on high alert all the time when i when we lived out in la um shit i guess it was uh it was New Year's 2021, like 2020 to 2021. And um, I had a friend call me, a friend from Knoxville, who said, it was like literally on New Year's Eve. And he said, hey, man, um, this is a weird call, but are you in L.A.? Are you going to be in L.A. for are you, are you doing any traveling? And I was like, no, we're, we're going to be here. And he was like, okay, well just like watch yourself, like keep an eye out. Um, like know your surroundings. Maybe if you have a go bag or something, like make sure it's good to go. And I was like, well, this is a really weird call, man. What's, what's going on? And he was like, well, I talked to, I got a call from a friend who's essentially He's ex-military and he's basically a mercenary, like he's a government contractor, and he gave me a very ambiguous um, note to like stay out of major U.S. cities for the next few days. And I was like, "Well, that's extremely scary. We are in Los Angeles. <laughs> like, 
the number two, I don't know, major U.S. city? I guess it Maybe depends three, on Chicago, the, right? It depends on where the, where the attack comes from. If well, the attack comes from the Pacific so, coast, from, from Asian countries or out that direction. So we had no, we had no clue what he was talking about and, and neither did my friend. He was just like, he just gave me kind of a really ambiguous warning. So just yeah, like, like keep your head on a swivel. Warning. Um, love you, man. Bye. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, so we already had to go back because of the threat of the constant threat of earthquakes in Southern California. So we yep. had that sorted out. So we just like, you know, got everything situated to where we could, we could move. And, uh, and then January 6th happened. Like, and I think that was it. I think oh, that was really? it. I think that he had gotten, I think that whoever this source was had gotten like some sort of underground word needed to keep it ambiguous. Like, um, but knew that there might be some sort of civil unrest and that, big shit going down somewhere. Yeah. Maybe thought, maybe thought it could have potentially been bigger than it wound up being, which I mean was fairly big, but, um, but anyway, yeah, that was that. And, and in the wake of the George Floyd killing being in LA, it was super wild. Like for months after that happened, LA was just like, fireworks every night basically you know there's this thing about living where we live now that provides me a little bit of peace and that is contrasted against living in a city like los angeles or new york or any big city where the infrastructure really is not equipped to deal with the amount of people that they have there if something awful happened in Knoxville, I've got about 10 ways to get out of my, yeah, I take my motorcycle. I could take mm-hmm. my boat. I could take my, you know, my car and go somewhere else and get away from something awful right. that's happening right. pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But in a city like New York or a city like Los Angeles, you are, you're stuck. You are with the other in, New York's case, 30 million people in LA. I think it's 10 or 15 million people Mm -hmm. that are in the same boat as you are. And they're all going to be on the same road, trying to get out of the same place at the same time. Dude, I couldn't even get to like Joshua tree on a regular ass Friday afternoon. Exactly. Imagine if some shit was going down for the locals. It's Joshua tree is like a little over a two hour drive. It's closer than Knoxville to Nashville. And if you left, to go from LA to Joshua tree on a Friday afternoon, it might take you five hours to get there Right, just on a regular Friday afternoon traffic. So imagine like any sort of emergency situation. Exactly. Lauren and I like charted out, okay, what's our escape plan if something bad happens. And it was like, stay here. Best case scenario (laughs) is like, we're going to be like sitting in traffic in long beach and you know, like, Exactly. Four hours of now. Four hours from now. That so. to me is the big risk of living in a city like that, especially if you're nervous about climate, yeah. about the political or not even political climate, but just like threats. If you're nervous about if you're nervous about all, the 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 hundred year earthquake that was supposed to happen twenty years ago in LA, mm-hmm. you know, like things like that. We were right on a fault line too. Like it felt I would like there were nights in LA as good of a time as we had there, there were nights in LA where I would just like be wide awake at 3am and I'd be like, 
we're still waiting on this earthquake, aren't we? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's going to happen anytime. I, I was in LA for an earthquake. I was, I was actually visiting one time, and I was staying with Josh Lowry when he was living in Silver Lake, and I was mm-hmm. staying. Um, I think it was like 2007, something like that. And it was my first day in town. I'd come in to work on Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And I mm. came in like a day early to just kind of hang out and, and get my feet underneath me before I had to go to work on this TV show. And uh, I was sitting in his apartment. He'd gone to work. And I was making breakfast or doing something in the kitchen. And, ev- and all the... Um, all the dishes started to shake. Glassware, yeah. All the glassware started to shake. And I was like, wow, I guess Josh lives pretty close to the uh, subway. <laughs> and I was like, there's no fucking subway in LA. Like, <laughs> it's, I was like, that was an earthquake. And then, so what did I do? Instead of running, you know, and taking cover or anything like that, I turned on the television. It's like beep, 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 beep. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a category, you know, 4.5 Richter scale earthquake that uh, with the epicenter in Nevada that it just shaken Southern, or shook Southern California. And it was like, you, you think about that and it's like if something like this goes down in a market like that, in a place that's huge with so many people – it's toast, dude. It'd be devastating. The wildfires. I mean, there, there's there's any kind of mass exodus from those cities is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. If if it ever happens, and I hope it doesn't. And I know they're thinking about those kinds of things, but living a place at, in a place like this makes me feel so much safer, and like I don't have this like attenuation of mm-hmm. of stress about about having an escape plan lord there's this one moment we had a couple like substantial uh, earthquakes when we were out there that you could feel right and one of them we were out to eat at a rest at a nice restaurant up on it's like on the third or fourth story of a building and that's a building that's practically made of like shipping containers or something like that (laughs) (laughs) precarious and we were eating and we felt the whole place just sway by honestly, like, I don't know, 18 inches or something of like, so you're sitting in a chair movement. You're sitting in a chair and your chair is moving laterally. Yeah. 18 inches. And we're watching, we're watching like the, the potted plants around us, the leaves like move with, you know, from the momentum of the, of the sway of the building. And, um, and then it died down. It lasted maybe three or four seconds. And we're just like stairs just locked on one another. Like, is this happening right now? And a couple really funny things is one, the restaurant, which we're out on kind of an outdoor patio. No one else stopped their conversations. They just blew through it. Do you think it's, it's like a normal they, thing? They're desensitized. Really? Right? You think it was desensitized? They're desensitized to it or they just, just didn't some, even notice what was I going on? I just don't on. know how you could notice. It was a really like the, the server came out and was like, everybody okay? You know, like, like this. So, so he knew like, it. Yeah. The, the people yeah. who were up on their feet moving around knew it. And so that was one thing that stuck out. And the other thing was, um, Lauren was like, do you know where I was thinking about going? And I was like, 
inside under that giant concrete countertop right inside the door. And she was like, yes. <laughs> like we both, we both were like, yep, that's the shelter. Yeah. So it's we had the... been kind of like primed for yeah. this situation. So yeah, you, you, you become, you walk into a room and that's the first thing you do is take mm-hmm. stock of where you're going to go. If mm-hmm. something, if, if shit hits a fan and I, I, that is a big thing that I've noticed about where I live now and, and living here that I don't, have that underlying stress that I did before of like what happens if a disaster were to occur, I feel like I can kind of carry my own bucket of rocks. Like I've got a generator here. I could probably refrigerate my food for a few days. I could probably, you know, I have clean drinking water and and I have like, I'm able to kind of take care of myself. You know, I, I've, I've got they, those things sorted out. I've heard that the, uh, the the most important thing in times of you know disaster is community um and the second most important thing this is kind of fucked up is defense because for every one of you who has your shit together there's you know several hundred people who, who are going to attack you to try to take your shit to try to yeah come get it from you so and and so i i have gone down that path too. I have guns. I have stuff to protect myself and my family in case something like that that happens. (laughs) Um, But I'm also in this boat of like, how long do I want to live if shit goes down? Right. You know, what do I want to be the, do I, do I want to live for two years and you're going to be, and be the last last person standing for sure. I'm not. Yeah. And I don't want to be, you're going to be the, uh, yeah, I could see you being like some sort of drunken mage, you know, that's that's uh one of the one of the last people surviving in the world because you've got this wit and like worldly knowledge that just sustains you and your family for long after the I, masses have passed. I just you'll don't, you'll, I, you'll wit and weasel your way out of <laughs> compromising situations. Maybe so, but I just don't understand this idea of like a bomb shelter where I need 20 years worth of shit to keep myself and my family alive. Like for what, what are you going to keep yourself alive for? So you can live on the earth by yourself. The light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. 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 No, hopefully it doesn't go that, that sideways in the end. I don't think it will, but that's, but there's a lot of people who think that way. There's people burying shit in their backyard right now. Hope hope for the best plan for the worst. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Reckon. Dude, I'm really glad that we got to sit down and do this. And yeah, I'm, we've uh, we've been talking. I think we went way over our uh, our our projected yeah, time. We don't have so. we, we don't we don't project anything yeah. around here. But I'm glad that you're back. Um, I'm glad you're that you're back in town because I've missed you. And I didn't even realize how much I missed you till I talked to you a couple of weeks ago on the lake. And, you uh, when you called me, shit, you called me like four or five weeks ago. Yeah. No, longer ago. Maybe, I don't know. Before you left? Might have been on the road or something like that. And uh, and you were like, I was like, hey, is everything all right? (laughs) (laughs) You only call me at times of distress. (laughs) (laughs) Is everything okay? I mean, certainly not when I was in town, but... But when I was in LA, it's like, yeah, that's everything okay? And you're like, oh man, no, just miss you. 
Can't wait till you're back. That made me feel real good. Thank well, you I'm glad that you're back, and I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people who are glad to have you and your presence not, back here. They're not nearly as glad to have me back as I am to have them back. Really? I can assure you. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's, been, it's been a long time coming, and like I said, like I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so dependent upon the social life that I, that I built yeah. you know, here in Knoxville. That it's just, you have a lot of equity in your community. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, something that I think about a lot, and I, I think you and I are somewhat uh, now blood brothers in this, is that um, I think people die wondering or wishing they would have sown their wild oats by moving to a, a, one of the big markets or mm. one of the big places yeah, and regret not having done it. And something that I think about almost every day is that like, I did it. I live, I lived in LA. I did the big market, big movie scene thing. And I don't, I no longer wonder what that's like. Right. And I'm not going to die wondering if that, you know, could have been a better world for me. Like I now know what that is. I did my time in the barrel ultimately. Is you're, like, you're totally right. And I had, I had those feelings before, before moving, even though that I thought that I would never move, but like I had the, the opportunity coming out of high school to go to, you know, Clemson or Furman or Georgia tech or North NC state or something like that. This is like an engineering major starting out. And, um, and I chose to stay in Knoxville for, because I was, I was dating a girlfriend who was a year younger than me. Right. Like it's very arbitrary in the grand scheme of things. Like sure. decision. We broke up like a week later probably. But um but I stayed in Knoxville and I think about how different my life could have been if I had gone to Clemson, you know, or yeah. something like that. No doubt it would be completely different. Um but like I don't I don't know if you can substitute like surely we're community builders everywhere. People are, but um but like the continuity that I've had here in Knoxville and the feeling of having left it at, you know, 30, 34 and be returning to it at 37 um, with with so many people I love, you know, some in different stages of life. A lot, you know, a lot has changed. A lot hasn't changed. It's just such a good feeling. And it, and it, it makes me really appreciate the depth of, uh, of the connections we have here. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. There's not the same level of social accountability in a place like Los Angeles that there is here in Knoxville. I agree. So. I, I never felt any, any kind of, of depth to any relationship I had out there. And, and, and that may have been because I was 19 years old, 20, 21 years old, but the relationship depth and the, the, the texture to my friendships and my relationships that I have now. Uh, are, I, I, I think, I don't think they're, uh, I don't think they only happen in a place like this, but, but where we are allows the space for those things to grow and allows those relationships to, uh, mature and move in ways because we're not worried about other things like 
the hour we have to drive to work every morning yeah. or, or yeah. the, you know, exorbitant rent we have to or just pay. the expectation that you're never going to see these people again. You know, yeah. it's like you run into somebody at the corner store or something like that. It's like, well, this person might be of my hood or they might be from across town and either way, no. I'm never going to see him again. Exactly. So. No, I, I need to treat this person with respect as a fellow human because a, it's the right thing to do, but B because I'm going to him at Java next week. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, there's something to it. Yeah. I really think no doubt. that there is. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we got to, to finally sit down and do this. And I'm very happy that you're back here and I'm very, um, I don't know. I'm very, I'm very excited about your career and very proud of what you've done because it's, it's, um, it's, it's not easy, but you're, but you're, you're, you're affecting change across, you know, not just where we live in our region, but you're, you're really working. Um, you're working on a lot of, on, on a lot of things that change, uh, people's ways of thinking and, and culture across many different markets and many different brands and all across the country. And I think it's really cool when we are able to, um, when we're able to behave and, and, and do work in a way that seems like what you just should do, but it has ripples far beyond that. And I'm, I'm very excited that you have been able to find a way to, uh, affect change and to be impactful, you know, across regional borders and, and all those different kinds of things. Take, I'm just so proud to know ex- you. exporting, exporting East Tennessean culture that's and, it. Uh, yeah, mindset. No, and one day we'll get back and we'll actually talk about work. <laughs> I guess since we didn't do wait, a whole, that's what this podcast is about, it. right? Whoops. <laughs> but uh, have a good one. Yeah, you too, Benny. Thank you. Shout out, shout out, Ryan Daly. Shout out, Ryan Reed. My predecessors on the on the pod. Your Tom Bros. Love you guys. Yeah, I love them too. Yeah. See you soon, Kerr. Good night, Benny. still there oh gosh i thought we lost you thanks for being here i hope you guys enjoyed it hit us up on instagram at south of scruffy send us an email south of scruffy at gmail.com if you got something to say and if you'd like to support the podcast with your dollar bills patreon.com slash south of scruffy good way to do it we appreciate when you do that helps us keep the lights on Be careful out there. Thanks for being here. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Pitchwire. Play me 